Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast, number 84. I'm Steve Smith, and with Brandon Flanagan. We're at the FM Tennis Performance Center in Boynton Beach, Florida. We're going to interview Mark Spann. Lifetime in tennis, you can talk to us from A to Z. Um, I think it was in 2019, his mother, former Ann Shilka, um, passed away. And I said, hey, Mark, uh, why don't you, uh, you know, write, write something or send, send me some notes and I'll write it. So I think this could be a, a two-part series. Um, you know, let's just start with Mark and ask, ask him his journey in tennis. And, you know, now he um, is a co-owner of a club in, in Philadelphia, Upper Dublin, working backwards. I think he's had that, I'm going to guess, 12, 13 years. He worked for Julian Krinsky for 25 and then he worked for his mother, spans of tennis, teaching tennis in South Africa. But he was also a student uh, at Tennis Tech. He played on the team at a time where I ran the team for a semester on an interim basis with uh, Craig Tiley and Dave Anderson. Um, but yeah, let's get Mark on the phone now. There's so many stories, so many uh, fun things to talk about. Flanagan, why don't you sing a song while I call him up? Here's a very, very brief Julian Krinsky story. A, a family uh, and, a, and a young boy that I've coached down here for many years. Um, uh, at the moment, not coaching him, but still good friends with the family. And I'd asked them to come and be part of this promotional video for our performance center. And the father, Adam, no longer plays, but he was doing some some demos and hitting into our kind of uh, hitting lane area with the tennis court. And he grew up going to Julian Krinsky camps in Philadelphia. He's got a pretty pretty clean forehand, so I wonder if Mark had a little bit to do with his his, uh, his instruction growing up. Well, I worked 25 years with Julian. That's a great learning experience on the court, off the court. Um, dialing for dollars. This is the nervous part. Got one ring. Hello. Mark Spann. Hey, Mark. Steve Smith. And Brandon, <laughs> hey, Brandon. Brandon How's Flanagan. Yeah, I, hey guys. That was I, very dramatic. That was a dramatic opening there. I, uh, What's that? That was a very dramatic kind of in- introduction from Steve. <laughs> <laughs> we have some history. Yeah, yeah. Probably called him Marky Baby Span. <clears throat> Get over here. No, thank you. Man. With uh, no, my father, um, uh, a f- close friend of his, he used to his, his, get married, and then his wife started calling my father Jimmy Baby. <laughs> Nobody called my father Jimmy Baby, but I, I, I call people like Marky Baby. Uh, anyway, great to have you on the podcast. With Thank uh, you. Number 84. You, you've listened to a few of these marathon sessions we've had, huh? I have. I have. With, uh, I like to go back to the well. With uh, Let's start with uh, the beginning days where uh, Marky Baby was hitting balls in South Africa. <laughs> Tell us about your yeah. tennis. You know, when you have when you have a mother who played as much tennis as mine did, um, I think I sort of grew up to the the sound of tennis balls being hit. Uh, we had a, a tennis court at home, and uh, she was actually pretty smart. She uh, had me play every sport I could lay my hands on. So uh, back then, uh, cricket was very popular, rugby, soccer. Used to play a lot of those sports, and um, actually took a lot of pressure 
off playing tennis. Um, but of course, uh, having had the uh, the background of a, a mother who played as much as mine did, um, I found myself on the court at about five. Um, but I was probably the most difficult kid to teach. Um, first part didn't didn't go particularly well. What makes you say you were difficult to teach? Um, I was normally the kid disrupting the others. So uh, <laughs> we used to learn in groups. And uh, I think I spent a lot of my time uh, in the penalty box or whatever they called it in those days. But, uh, yeah, wasn't, wasn't the greatest student um, at the beginning. In, in what city was your mother based in? Um, Johannesburg. Johannesburg, which is now Gauteng. Yeah. So, um, um, played, played a lot as a junior. Um, the school I went to, we used to have, uh, the holidays didn't coincide with the tournament. So actually as a kid, I, I didn't play too many tournaments until I was like 12 or 13. Um, and then really started to get into it. Um, but because I played a lot of the other sports, um, probably didn't spend as much time playing tennis, um, as I could have. Um, but uh, by the time I got to 14 or 15, uh, winning most of the matches I played um, but uh, then actually left to go to boarding school and uh, went to school in a place called Bloemfontein and quite honestly we had six tennis courts and nobody tennis was like a non-sport hmm. um, so we used to actually get a group of us together um, there were three or four actually really good players at our school but uh, everybody had to play rugby where we were so rugby was the big sport. So actually kind of took a break on my tennis for um, two or three years. Got to 18 and thought, what have I done? Um, so uh, actually that was around about then I met Craig Tiley, um, who was kind of helping put a lot of the uh, satellite tournaments and um, probably the only exposure we had in those days was the satellite, um, satellite tournaments. And, and he used to uh, play in them and run them. I uh, used to assist in, in putting them together, but that kind of got me back into tennis. Now, I um, remember you telling me that Tylee, um, you know, if say he lost in the tournament early, he would stay to the bitter end, uh, helping run the tournament. But back up, ironic. I'm sorry, um, hold that thought. But back up, tell us a little bit more about the boarding schools. All boys, pretty disciplined. Um, all boys, um, very very strict and um, sport on Sundays. Um, so. Uh, um, it's actually, it was a good move for me. Um, I, uh, I, I was kind of struggling a little bit, uh, when I had too many things to do. And I think, uh, boarding school focused me a little more. So, uh, that pretty, was a good move. Pretty formal coat and tie everywhere and all nine yards. Yep. Coat and tie everywhere. And, um, we were, uh, I think the only English speaking school there. Um, Afrikaans was the other like prominent language. And <laughs> you just, uh, when you left the school property, you have to be careful. Um, you know, being being one of the few uh, English people in the town, I mean, I probably embellish it, but uh, it's kind of interesting. We used to be uh, a little scared when we left the uh, school premises. Is that being a privileged preppy? I mean, with uh, because it was more affluent kids. It was actually a government school that used to be a private school, um, so it had it had a lot of the amenities, but it was a very small school. Um, yeah, it was, it was it was a great experience. Yeah. I I think the discipline, uh, you know, perhaps it's changed from the days where you and I were in prep school. But, uh, yeah, I think it was great. I look back upon that going away. It was a super experience. 
I interrupted you. You said, ironically, you're talking about this, the satellites and Craig Tyler. Yeah, I was actually when Craig was there, Frank Hammond. Remember Frank Hammond who yeah, defaulted, yeah. Uh, was it uh, um, McEnroe? It, well, it was Nastasi playing against McEnroe, wasn't it? 79? Or was it, was it McEnroe against Wielander? Well, I remember. I forget. I remember the New York, uh, in the U.S. Open in New York. I should have gone ahead tickets, but I stayed at the old Roosevelt watching films. Um, yeah. The late Eve Craft said, "Hey, if you want to just come in here tonight, and look at films." We were doing that, but uh, I think it was um, Frank Hammond defaulted Nastasi, and he later came back. Mike Blanchard came back and um, he reinstated. So he was defaulted, and he put him back in the match, and. Um, I think one of the side stories to that is after the match, Macaro and Nastasi were just going at it in the locker room. Nastasi said, hey, you want to go have dinner? And <laughs> young Macaro said, yeah, okay. So they went to dinner afterwards. Yeah. So I think even back in those days, uh, you know, Craig had really started to pick his course because, you know, he, he, he was really, uh, um, he was involved in everything to do with organizing. You know, so... Uh, Actually, there was a South African by the name of Daryl Weiss. Yep. And they, uh, did, did you know Daryl? I knew Daryl. actually bought his rackets off him. That's right. So he he was in the Army, the South African Army, with Tylee. And Tylee, that's how Tylee uh, was convinced to go to tennis tech. Yep. And then, uh, actually, Tylee was the one who told me about tennis tech. So, uh, did, you, did you do a stint in the Army? No, I did not. I did not. That was mandatory at the time, unless you were in, in school. How, how did that play out? No, I was actually uh, I was English. I uh, I was never I was never South African. Um, so uh, I was actually a, 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 an English citizen, so to speak. I was actually born in England and lived in South Africa uh, for various periods. You know, like as a kid. Well, I know your mother. We talk a lot about your mother, but um, she's also born in England, but. A lot of people don't know this about Virginia Wade. Um, before she had her second birthday, she moved to South Africa from England. So she spent the first 15 years of her life in South Africa. So I, think, I did not know that. I think the sunshine of South Africa, I mean, she became a Wimbledon champion. Um, but yep. yeah, Virginia Wade is um, also, you know, like your mother, she's, she's English, but she was um, spent many years in South Africa. But she's, unlike your mother, she spent her formative years in South Africa. With, uh, yeah. tell us, uh, you know, get going with, uh, I guess we'll come back to your mom, but, um, so how many years did you taught for your mom? I mean, you, you were, you were a child tennis teacher, correct? Yeah. Um, pretty much when I came out of school, um, she, uh, was pretty, it was sort of, if you're not going to college yet, you're going to learn something. So she put me on the court with her and, uh, I can just remember being so painfully shy. I couldn't even say hello to people. Um, and actually overheard my mother once, uh, one of her friends saying to her, you can't do that to your son, you know, just because I, I really found it very hard to communicate, um, you know, back in those days. And um, and actually the thing that changed it for me was uh, I came out in, I think, 1982 to spend three weeks with Dennis Vandermeer, you know, doing the PTR. And I literally knew within maybe half a day that this was what I wanted to do. Um, you know, after I saw his, his, his ability to teach and the, the dynamics and just the scope, you know, of tennis. 
um, and the way that it, in those days, I think it was about 10 days to do the PTR. I think now it takes about a day, if that. No, it was. It was the university. It was a 10-day program. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I have fond memories going through uh, Vandermeer's program. And in those days, he did the whole thing himself. So it was really, you know, part of it was, was, was his information, but uh, a lot of it was obviously his presentation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was, he was fascinating. Really, really uh, inspired me. No, a great speaker, group, the group dynamic skills. We, we've dedicated a podcast or two to Dennis. Um, yeah, they're not to be duplicated. The one and only amazing, amazing yep. individual. So, uh, his his ability to remember names and to remember strokes, you know, all I can remember is him having his back to the uh, to the video monitor as he went through every single person, looked at them, said their name, and told them what they were working on with his, uh, you know, which, whichever stroke he happened to pick. But uh, back in those days, it was literally like magic. It was yeah, uh, very he, impressive. Yeah, he would um, generally do the serve. He would take uh, thirty six. Um, 36 students, and he would, for the listeners, he would know their name, and he wouldn't look backwards. And he knew the time of how long they would be on on the film. Yeah, that was amazing. And then he would say what their flaw was, and then give them a quick correction, and they yep. would, and didn't stop. And then but at that point, he had everybody right in the palm of his hand. I mean, just yep. amazing showman. That was amazing. amazing. So your mother, really incredible. your mother was a tennis player, then a tennis than a tennis teacher? Yeah, she was a tennis player. She actually had a skiing accident um, uh, pretty soon. Um, I think she, she won the doubles back in 55 at Wimbledon. And then just after that, she had a skiing accident and actually lost her kneecap. Um, I mean, the sad thing is nowadays, I think they would have just scraped your knee. Um, you know, it'd be like a minor procedure in those days. They literally, you know, they took a whole kneecap out. So she continued to play, you know, like in a brace, but definitely, you know, couldn't play at that same level. Um, came to South Africa. My dad was in the Royal Navy, and uh, they actually met. They didn't know each other, and their best friends were marrying each other. They met at the wedding. My dad went to sea for six months, and then I think they got married shortly after that. It was, it was kind of a cool story. But then they both decided to immigrate, uh, you know, to, to move to South Africa. And, uh, you know, then we would go backwards and forwards. Um, I have a sister as well. So, uh, you know, all the family was in England. So we used to spend some time in, in England and out to South Africa. So she started coaching almost immediately, you know, to kind of support the family. Um, and just really, really got very, very excited about coaching. And that very coach, excited about coaching. And that coaching was done on the court. You said you guys had a court at your at your place? Yeah, we had a court at home, and I, I, for whatever reason, back in those days, I mean, probably one out of every three houses had a tennis court. I mean, it's crazy. Like, even when I go back there now, you know, just, I mean, everybody used to, I mean, people stopped building tennis courts at, at some stage, but, you know, in those days, everybody had a, a tennis court and a swimming pool. It was just uh, a lot of tennis courts. Spans of, of tennis, tennis that's what she called her program, right? Spans of tennis, and uh, my sister now actually uh, continues to run spans of tennis many years later oh, that's great in in, Johann- uh, in johannesburg or my part of it? in johannesburg yeah yeah i know mark so, I, uh, I could uh i could tell you a little bit about my uh two-day workshop with the uspta getting my certification when you think of that 10-day 
course with Dennis Vandermeer and you think of the, the different, the different uh, exercises or presentations, yep. the curriculum, uh, what are some other memories from that course that stick out? Um, how everybody was involved. I mean, they even ran a tournament, you know, like at the end that everybody was involved in. So, so much of it was, you know, really trying to see, you know, obviously from, you know, I remember old Dennis was a uh, racket back and down, thumb to thigh. You know, he had, of course, he had all his, his like key things and you had to study those and you had to, you had to have all the checkpoints, you know, for the exam, which, um, you know, I'd have to say after Braden, uh, a lot of those disappeared. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think to this day, probably the most powerful thing that, that, that I took from Dennis was the group dynamics, you know, his ability to handle a group of people, um, to teach them, um, just the way he used to organize people and, uh, orchestrate it. I think corrective measures as well. Dennis, I did that just today, helping a boy with a serve and just put a ball under his heel, you know, so he's on the ball of his foot knee is flexed to just help, you know, rotation from the ground up. Yeah. But with Vandermeer, you know, what we could do if we studied Braden, for example, is you could use, you know, the, the science from Braden and use it with the Vandermeer progressions. Yep. So uh, very well structured, the group lessons, um, you know, for yeah, actually the, the, the graduated length method, that was, that was one of the things that really stuck with me over the years. And then when you actually saw the, the, the evolution of, you know, like red ball, orange ball, green ball, you know, a lot of that was really based on, on you know, changing the size of the court, changing the, the, the size of the stroke based on where you were on the court yeah, the to make it either easier size or... The, size of the court, size of the racket, and size of the... There's one more. Yep. Size of the stroke, size of the court, and size of the... I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. The racket, yeah. the, the racket, the racket. Yeah, to use it, it was just the racket and the court and the stroke. So Dennis would do the mini tennis, and a turn from ice hockey, you'd have the players face off. So they put the rackets, they'd line the rackets up, and everybody would have an eastern grip. Mm. And then he would say back up, and you go okay, boopity boop, and then he put two tennis balls, and then his same trickery to get people to hit over the net. At first, you're just trying to aim over one tennis ball, just, just touching the ball. And then two tennis balls, and then he placed them over the net. But he would start with he would start with as many people as he wanted on a tennis court. Yeah. So ten days with very the, well organized. Ten days with Tennis University. Um, we added that at Tennis Tech. That was uh, three sixty five times two, so seven hundred thirty days plus the summer internship. Yeah. Yep. So eighty two that you went you went back and then. Um, you came to, te- you asked to go to Tennis Tech, what, 85, 86? Uh, 86, yeah. 86. With, um, and uh, I still I still remember that first day, Steve, arriving with my, my racket bag with six rackets in the back. Um, and I'm, he was saying to me, uh, what did you bring all those rackets for? I was like, isn't this the tennis teaching program? And you said, yep, you're not going to need those. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, though, um, I was there for the, all of the 80s, a decade, and um, I think it was uh, Fred Niffen, then Robert Cox, and then John Peterson. Yep. So, um, yeah, you played. You you you, were, you played well enough to uh, be in the top six. Um, I know it was like an immigration center. Um, I think when you played, there was just one American between the yeah the top Scott six Stewart the, top six in the boys, top six in the girls. Scott Stewart. He's out in West Texas. He actually uh, married actually, Carmen Clark. 
Chad Clark. One, one of the best parts of that experience was actually you and Tylee were were coaching the team, and um, that was really uh, that, you know I can remember uh, that was uh, I learned a lot, learned a lot from that. Yeah, Anderson as well. The three of us. Um, because we, we really were, I was highly motivated to have the team become part of the tennis tech program. I was told when I started for every 20 students, um, we would have another full-time faculty member. But I always, I was just there by myself. I shouldn't say it that way. But I was the only full-time faculty member. So that's where the, the peer teaching, students teaching students. Um, but years later, um, I was leading a junior college program. and It was at the Nationals and John Peterson you know, players coach, everybody loved him. He's very successful. He's in a bunch of Hall of Fames. So he said, well, who, who did you recommend to be the coach at Tyler Junior College? Of course, he didn't get an interview. And I said, Craig Tiley. And Peterson said, I think he would have done a good job. Because, you know, he followed in the footsteps of Jennifer Roberts. Um, was she at Tennis Tech when you were there? No, she wasn't. But she did come back to uh, lecture a couple of times. Okay, so, yeah, she she went there first. And he, he went, director of instruction, and it just opened up where on an interim basis he was a men's coach, and they went from, I would say, obscurity to winning the national championship. Yep. So between 82 and 86, what, you were just back home working with your mom? Yeah, I was back uh, working. My mom used to travel on, you know, whenever I could, would travel on the satellite circuit, did a lot of coaching courses. Um, but I think after going to Dennis, it was just like, you know, this is what you're going to do. And um I think to my mother's credit was like, if this is what you're going to do, then you're going to study. And, um, you know, best thing she ever did was send me to, uh, to study under you for two years where I learned, I didn't know a whole lot. I was it's amazing how much you need to know before you realize how little, you know, and I was a really nice guy about it too. I, actually, oh, you were sweet. I, actually the, the, um, I mean, I, I remember entirely, um, you know, Militant is a very strong word. People throw that my way all the time, but uh, just part of the South African culture. I remember Tylee being on the other side of the net and just waving the kid up to the net. So then reprimanded him for that. I said, no, you go to the kid, you know, and you run over. And um, So I remember telling Tylee, I said, um, you didn't charge for lessons before, did you? And uh, I said, you know, I said, give it a month and give it a month and... Uh, you, I'll let you know that or you'll you'll tell me that the people that you've taught in the past, you need to find a way to refund those people. How and the program was so large by the time you got there. I remember uh, my first. Uh, it was about eighty-eight people. Yeah. My first experience with uh, Tylee was I played him. I didn't play all the time, but I played in the tennis tech close. So I, I played him when there was a bunch of rain delays. You know, you play, you have to roll drive the court, and you play. And because actually, we got the program was so large that it was uh, the first year students. Um, it's not like I really got to know them that well. It was such a large program, but you know, by the time somebody was there, two years. I mean, I I did know them, but it was a matter of I, I wouldn't say it was so much on the relationship side. I knew what their work ethic was and their organizational skills. And um, now, trust me, Steve, we all felt like we got to know you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but. Before you came to Tennis Tech or after? I mean, we have to talk about Julian Krinsky. I mean, we could talk about Tennis Tech. Well, actually, no, Julian, uh, uh, Julian was, I, I bumped into Julian um, in about 1983, and he was giving a lecture in South Africa. And he said to me, why don't you um, come out and um, see what American tennis is all about and American camps? 
Um, and that was actually my first stop before I came to uh, Tyler. Um, I went to go work with him, and that's a funny story. Um, I, it, my, my mother was very, very, you know, like in her teaching, was very, very strict and very precise. And nobody ever explained to me that when kids play tennis for 30 hours a week, they don't really, really want to have a dissertation on every, you know, part of hitting a forehand and a backhand and footwork. And and I used to teach the living bejeebies out of these kids. And then I realized every break, there was like a line outside of Julian's office because they were all requesting to get off my court. <laughs> and <laughs> after about two weeks, um, you know, Julian had to talk to me because so many kids just didn't want to be taught by me. And I remember saying to him, uh, you know what, Julian, uh, uh, this is not for me. And, uh, you know, actually had kept in contact with, with Dennis, who knew my mom. And I was like, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm going to, me and my sister, because we both came out together, you know, we're going to go and try something different. And then for whatever reason, um, you know, Julian was like, no, nah, he's just got a couple of things to learn. And, um, yeah, that was, that, that was getting broken in. in my first experience was, was quite a rough one. Oh, Julian, yeah. Julian, a brilliant man in so many ways. Um, yep. I told people, you got to be careful of, a, of an acronym, though. I, I was hired by Julian to train the, the coaches. I know you did that. Um, probably for every summer I did it, you did it, you know, maybe five, ten. Yep. It had to be one of the largest camps in the U.S., like 60-plus coaches. I think we were in Tennis Magazine. Um, I think it was like, it was either rated as top three camps or top three biggest camps. I forget, but uh, yeah, there was a stage we had 55 coaches. And we used to run like a three or four day seminar, you know, before where all the, the coaches would come in. And, um, you know, we're trying to train them in every facet of what they were going to do, you know, from the time they got up to the, uh, you know, to the end of the week. Back to acronyms, and, uh, JKST. Just knowledge short of the truth. Just killing students' time. Jewish kibbutz securing treasure. With, uh, Brandon's, no, got a, Brandon's got an FM, you know, they, I think people could figure out why they couldn't call themselves MF, his, his partner. <laughs> he, he actually, yeah, his partner, Allington, is British. Um, with, um, no, the, the tennis tech program uh, with your mother, uh, this is an amazing story, a, a Wimbledon champion. But you went back and you, you took the information, you know, you're maybe just, in your early twenties, right? If, if I'm sure you were twenty by then, right? Yeah. So you went back to South Africa, and your mother was so open to change. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, she always felt like you know, with her coaching, she was very passionate, but um, she used to get very frustrated because she always felt people could you know improve quick. And I always remember the one time we were teaching, and we were trying to get people to point the racket, the tip of the racket, where the ball went. You know, like so really focusing, which is really a, a continental role, I guess, in those days. And I just remember her being very, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like she used to get very frustrated. And I remember I was saying to her, mom, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and uh, she was right. She's like, I know, but it's what everybody's teaching. Um, and actually, I would say the thing that my, my mom felt the strongest about, she used the phrase more and more after meeting Vic, was... Um, that the enemy of the great teacher was perpetuation. Um, you know, as in I teach as my forefathers teach. And um, I think that, uh, you know, for somebody like herself who was very hungry for knowledge and information, um, when I came back after my first year at Tennis Tech, you know, I just basically 
uh, all the information I had. She must have read my folders and my my file. I don't know how many times over and over and over. And uh, you know, got to the stage where she realized that that a lot of the information was Braden. And she kind of knew Vic from back in the day, I guess, from the barnstorming days. They knew each other. Um, but she got to the stage where she had studied tennis for the future so intensely. I think she wrote about 12 exams on it. You know, she'd have all these exams. And we got to a stage where every Monday, um, coaches from all over Johannesburg used to come out to the house. She would make them lunch and she would share information. Um, and that's really what she became very, very strong about was, um, she felt that everybody should be a student of the game, you know, whether you were a coach, um, uh, player and, uh, was really trying to educate people. And, uh, you know, got to the stage where if you looked at, at our tennis court at home, I mean, a, the, uh, we had all those tennis partners, which I guess, you know, like your, um, um, uh, the, the practice backboard that you have. Mm-hmm. We used to have about six of them next to the court where kids would come and practice. Um, on the wall, uh, on the fences, she would have balls put out in the shape of a swing. Um, the courts were marked, you know, with a lot of like the 19.6 degrees, the difference between cross court down the line. You know, it just became our tennis court, became a teaching center. And I think um, Vic really, really opened up her eyes um, in terms of what could be taught and how powerful information was. I remember uh, corresponding with your mom and talking to her. Um, I remember when she said, uh, I know that you have studied Vic Braden and memorized it word for word. And um, but for me, I mean, obviously, I was, it was like everyone. Vic came into the living room in the 70s with those PBS clips. And then, you know, his book came out in 77. There were some other instructional tapes prior to that um, that he had. But we used his, his books as textbooks. And I used to test the students, like your mother. I mean, okay, all right, we've gone through this. Let's best by test. Let's go through this if you know the, the information. Yeah. And then with, uh, yeah, so for me, I have to think, Angela Buxton, another Wimbledon champion, played at the same time your mother did. She, um, she spent six weeks with Dave Anderson and myself back in Boca Raton at the former uh, Seguzo Bassett Tennis Academy, which is now Everett's. And this, yep. it was sponsored by Rover. And she brought um, brought a small group of eight players. Of course, there's always a little bit of a snag. There was a girl on the, on the squad who had been taught by her mom. And um, anyway, Angela Buxton, I remember sitting down with Robbie Seguzo, who's a Wimbledon champion, and said, you need to learn this information. Because And then what she said is that, unfortunately, you and I are Wimbledon champions. People know who you are now. But when you're my age, people don't remember the doubles champions, just the singles champions. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, um, you know, coming into the game from, you know, the snowbanks upstate New York, late to the game, and to, you know, have a Wimbledon champion tell you that, okay, this, this influence, I, it's, I've, I've, I've changed how I teach tennis. When I think back, your I think your story of, of how you got into tennis, if I'm correct, was that you realized you weren't going to make it as a hockey player. You changed to tennis. You try to find the greatest coaches you could to help you and realized that um, 
the information was very contradictory. And actually, her story was very similar. She lived about two hours away from Wimbledon. Um, the best coach in those days, I think, was at Wimbledon. She used to get on a train, go two hours up to Wimbledon, play with the coach for an hour, and then go back two hours. And that was basically a routine day after day. And when she looked back later on, she was like she had a really good forehand, and I think she felt she got changed back into a continental. So that was like one of her things, you know, in terms of coaching and following information. Um, you know, she kind of uh, realized that, that, that something that was really good changed to something different, but it really didn't need to. And uh, I think that really motivated her, you know, when it came to, to getting to the truth of strokes and technique and physics. And Yeah, that's a point we so, make about Welby Van Horn. I don't know anyone who taught beginners better than Welby's balance method. But he would refer to um, the beginner's grip, the Eastern grip on the forehand, and then the championship grip, which wasn't a, a true continental. It was, you know, the old Australian grip, what we call, call a composite today. But I remember being in the nursing home, and he said, what a mistake. But that's back when, you know, by the second week of Wimbledon, with the wooden rackets, uh, people were pay, playing on, 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 gra on grass, and they'd be wearing spikes, and they didn't want to let the ball bounce. But your, your mother grew up in a, at a, in a boarding school of boys as well, right? She did, actually. Um, it was during the Second World War, had three sisters, and um, she could not get anybody to play. Nobody would play tennis with her. So she used to go out um, every day and put down cans and just serve. Um, Supposedly, I mean, she used to say that she had the fastest serve in the world out of the women because she had hit so many serves, but she used to serve after serve after serve, and that was the main part of her practice. Um, yeah, people don't understand about myelin. You help somebody with their serve, but they got to put in the reps. Got to put in the reps. It's, it's going to help myelin's the speed and smoothness of movement. Um, you can't just give someone a half hour lesson and they're ready to go bang the ball. I mean, they have to put in hours and hours of practice. So she taught uh, right, right through the end of her life, correct? Um, she did. Um, she taught probably up until the age of maybe 70. And um, until she got her grandkids, you know, we couldn't figure out what she would, uh, you know, what she was going to do because she used to spend so many hours on the court. Um, and, uh, you know, again, when I think back to being younger, I mean, the who's who of tennis used to come out to train with her. I think it was uh, Ilana Kloss might have been one of them. Um, Brenda Kirk, but you know, like a lot of these people, she'd be out there practicing with them because uh, you know she'd sort of got to the stage where she wasn't playing, but was very fascinated by statistics and and strategy and so on. And there must be a just such a long list of coaches that she influenced. Um, Stanford Bossett was a USTA coach, and I was on the road with my son, and he was with the USTA coaches at that time. Connor and. Yep. Uh, Stanford said to me, uh, my go-to guy is Mark Spann. Have you ever heard of him? How, how, do, you, how do you know Stanford? Did he work for your mom? Um, no. Uh, actually, um, so probably 1997, uh, Jason Weir-Smith, um, he was a, a kid I coached when he was really, really young. Um, played for TCU. He was the number one doubles player. Um, Jason uh, asked me to you know, travel with him and coach him. Um, on the tour, and his brother was training with Stanford down in Florida. I think the other ones there were Marty Fish, um, Andy Roddick, 
Bo Hodges. I'm trying to think of the other player. It was actually the guy who played six on Tali's team that when they won the NCAAs. Um, Graydon Oliver, maybe? No, no, it wasn't Graydon. Is it Col- um, Michael Calkins? Nope. Mir Delic? I remember he must have been a Jay Brain type because when I watched him play, when I think back, he was kind of he was quite stiff, very very methodical. Uh, uh, Chris Martin. Yeah, it might have been Chris Martin. Might have been. But uh, anyway, so I mean, when we used to go down there, so we'd go down there and practice periodically because there would also be a way of you know us getting some good practice in and um, you know Jason getting to see his brother. But that was how I got to know Stanford and. Um, you know, uh, we've talked tennis late into the night. And then over the years, you know, a number of the tournaments and stuff, we would, would bump into each other. And uh, great guy. Very interesting the way he used to train players. I mean, just, uh, you know, it was it was the whole package there. You know, you could do everything. You, know, you just have four players, and that's what he'd focus on. And he's um, like, like yourself, a lot of South Africans, uh, he has a rugby mentality, right? He's... Uh, you know, well, he's from Cape Town, top, which top-minded. I, no, he was very. I mean, he, he a very, very strong work ethic, and um, you know, and I think like you know, at, at his house, everybody seemed to respect him, and you know, he laid down the rules and ran a very tight ship. And uh, you know, ironically, I don't know if you saw Steve. He uh, Victor Lilov, <clears throat> Victor, and I think he's got Victor and one other kid that are now traveling with him. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Victor play a couple times uh, here recently. One thing out of humility, uh, Stanford was working with Andy Roddick, and we have this film of Andy Roddick where he had a regressed palm up, and the word his mother uses is serve was pitiful. And um, Stan doesn't claim to have changed Andy's serve because Andy just put the racket in the salute position, abbreviated motion, out of frustration, and just started clocking serves, and that's how he started serving that way. Um, with, uh, now, yeah, I know that he's, uh, uh, working with Victor. Tell us about Jason. I know you brought Jason to us one time. Uh, that was, a, yep. you said, a, one, one of the highlights of your career at that point where. Well, actually we came to you. They were, he was playing in the second round of the Miami open against Todd Woodbridge and Jonas Bjorkman. And they and they just won. They'd won the first set. Second set, they're up five four. He's playing with Neville Godwin, five four forty thirty, and uh, there was an overhead. They just missed the overhead. About forty five minutes later, we were in the car driving up to you. You know, when it, like I think like looking at it, it was an incredible experience. But when you look at the difference between eating and not eating, you know, based on how you perform and and going from one week to the next, you know, especially when you're a doubles player. Um, you know, is, is there so much pressure, you know, on those players to perform? And I mean, uh, when they lost to Bjorkman and, uh, and Woodbridge, Jason hit an overhead, must have missed it by half an inch. If it was in, they would have won the match. It would have been in the third round. Um, probably would have made enough money <clears throat> to be able to go through like the next six months, you know, expenses paid for, missed the overhead. You know, and then you're driving out of there. And I think about a year after that, um, Jason, actually quit, you know, like, like kind of stop, but that, that would have been a great win for them. And, uh, with Jason, you, um, you coached him for a number of years. I remember the highlight you said that it was a, a, such a great treat to go back to Wimbledon. You're coaching Jason and you're at Wimbledon with your mom. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, 
actually he was, he was playing with Katie Schluckerbier in the mixed doubles. <clears throat> and I think it was the second round. They'd just beaten Guy Eagle and Barbara Shett, I think it was. But they were the second seeds. And uh, actually, my mom's sitting there as well. And of course, the best thing, I think if you get through the second round, you get to spend the second week at Wimbledon. Um, so it was really a, a very, you know, my mom being English, having one, they made her a, a member. So it was almost like her every year she would go back to Wimbledon, you know, for the two weeks of Wimbledon, catch up with all her old buddies. Um, but this was really very, very neat because she got to show me, you know, like literally every nook and cranny of Wimbledon, you know, like going in the back because I was able to get in there as a coach. Um, you know, and a lot of her, her stories and, you know, and that's why I guess when you realize a lot of this is just the experiences that these players had and the things they went through and the, the friendships they formed. But, uh, no, that was very special. It reminds me very of a uh, handful of summers with Gavin Forbes. Uh, yeah, so your mother's uh, first name basis with Rosewall and Emerson, that must have impressed you a little bit. Yeah, we were shocked. <clears throat> shocked. And that actually... Um, that was in South Africa because we, uh, during the apartheid era, you know, like nobody could really come in or out. And I think one of the first events, you know, was with, um, with Rosewall and Emerson. And, uh, you know, we walking along, they saw my mom and I think they must have spent like 15, 20 minutes, you know, it's like kind of catching up and one realized like there was a lot of history there. But, um, you know, especially to see uh, Rosewall shouting, hey, Shelly, which was my mom's middle name, Shilcock. That was, um, kind of special because you know until that point you just hear your mother saying to you, you know like I played a lot of tennis I, I won Wimbledon you don't really know what it is mm-hmm. but you definitely knew who Ken Rosewell was yeah you know and Roy Emerson so that was, was that was pretty the, cool he was in the final in 1954 and then 1974 never won but he's a that's right 20 year span a lefty played right handed so he never had a, had a great serve um, yeah. uh, Lillo speaking of Wimbledon he was in the junior Wimbledon final I think the listeners would be interested to know um, that he was um, just turning eight years old and you sent him to us. Uh, what what did you see in that kid at such a young age? I'm sorry, which kid? Uh, Victor Lilov. Oh, um, he was ferocious. Uh, I remember you saying he had way more funny bone than his backbone. I mean, he definitely had a sense of humor, but he had, he had, a, he had an intensity, you know, when he came out. Um, I made the mistake of playing him ping pong, you know, when he was eight and he cleaned my clock and, you know, it was, it was like, I, I don't know when you look at young kids, I mean, I think there are a lot of kids that are talented, but he was passionate. I mean, he really, he loved being on a tennis court. Um, you know, I think when he was younger, you know, um, He's probably much more on the emotional side, which which he seem, definitely seems to have, uh, you know, kind of matured. But he, he had such a strong passion. Of course, you know, great athlete. But uh, I found as a kid, you know, he, he, he worked harder than most of the other kids. So he had talent, but he worked hard too. Um, and, I you know, I remember when, uh, you know, he came out and, and spent time with you and, you know, you guys spent all that time really building his efficiency and, and it was great to see him play in the finals of Wimbledon last year in, in junior Wimbledon. Yeah, backtracking national championships in the Orange Bowl and La Petite. Um, good example would be uh, the tiebreaker test. Uh, Brandon started out, a uh, young kid by the name of Alex Cairo, who uh, his family moved to Dallas and he's worked with Dave Anderson. 
he, he, I remember the, the two of them being in camps together, summer training. And the tiebreaker test was a big deal. You know, okay, we're going to have a tournament. So you get everybody in line. And if you hit the first volley cross court in the service box, generally we let everybody survive the first round. You could have, you know, big camp, you have 60 kids. And it was not a joke to him. It was like, I am going to win this. Um, so that, yeah, I think that's what great competitors have. I tell people I've met all sorts of top 10 players, but I think of Welby Van Horn, Wayne Saban, and Carling Bassett. Those three, it's like, okay. I remember Carling Bassett yelling at me for putting salad dressing on my salad. <laughs> just just very, very intense. With, uh, yeah. But the doubles uh, with Jason, uh, you know, I would have loved to see my son Connor pursue doubles. But, you know, you figured out you, 20% of the money goes to the doubles, 80% to singles, and then you got to split. You got to split the doubles. Plus, the way it works, if you're part of the big show and you have two good tournaments a year, you get to stay on top. It's very, very difficult to break in. Um, yeah. And actually, as Jason was playing, that was where they were starting to uh, really encourage the singles players to to play in the doubles draws which I think was, you know, to try to a, get more people to come and watch and uh, also to kind of decrease the accommodation costs. And yeah, I think that's so it really started to downsize quite dramatically. That's very unfair. I think at Indian Wells where the players are playing indoors and okay, they're going to the beautiful weather in the desert and the singles players rock up and go, well, I think I'd like to stay here a little longer and they play doubles. So if they're, and if their singles ranking is higher than the, the double specialist double ranking, they're in, um, so they're really, you know, in some ways stripping people of their livelihood. I, I think it would be better if they came up with a way where every player played singles and doubles. I think it'd be nice if the the marquee players, you know, they could even come back and play doubles, you know, like say Fetter. Uh, that that would be a wild card. Have the Fed come back and, and play doubles without Yeah, actually, at, at the Labor Cup, when you see, you know, like Nadal and, and Federer playing, I mean, it's, it's amazing how they can turn it on. Yeah, with um, you know, Feder is the one who's he's really opposed to uh, you. You double the prize money basically, and you double the points. And um, I, you know, I think it's the British have it right where if you get to the quarterfinals, if you're in the last eight, um, that you had a great tournament. And it really just because you get to the semis, you don't necessarily need to double the the points. Tell us about the um, last eight club. You're probably one of the only people. Uh, that uh, has a mom who was in the, that club. I mean, because we, if you, yeah. as a champion, she has, you know, she, you know, the grand slams, um, you know, she's going to get credentials or, or at where, where she yeah. won. Um, what's the last yeah. eight club like? Small. I think it's as you walk into Wimbledon, it's like on the left-hand side. I'm trying to think, of, you know, the gate right near where Fred Perry is. You know, it's a very small, um, well, when I think of, of when I went in there with her, which must have been about 12 years ago, yeah, pretty small, very personable. And uh, I think very often the players would actually go there to kind of get away from everybody else and hopefully connect with some of their buddies. Um, but, um, yeah, nice little quiet nook away from everything else. And, uh, you know, I think I think she, she went there as well. Same thing, you know, when she'd had, had a lot of tennis and, you know, want to get away from the noise, you'd go over there and normally connect with a couple of friends and tell some, some great stories. Great stories. I think they were much more connected in those days. 
you know, when you look at the relationships between a lot of the players. Yeah, just how they travel yeah. too. They're traveling by train, by bus, and yeah. So are you, are you only allowed if you've made the last eight at Wimbledon? Yeah. Yeah. I, they have, they, I mean, I, I guess they have a bunch of different badges and permissions and whatnot based on, you know, your prior history. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't see a backer or, a, you know, most of the, none of the, uh, very few of the singles players, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of the older you know, players from, from way back when. Um, I think Kurt Nielsen was one of my, my mother's uh, better friends. Mm. Who uh, Actually, that's a story. <clears throat> was traveling in a car, um, uh, a courtesy shuttle with is Kurt, Kurt Nielsen, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was, uh, they were talking about what their kids were doing. And he said, you know, what are your kids doing? He said, my son, you know, is in America studying tennis and my daughter is, you know, plays tennis. She said, uh, you know, what, what did your son end up doing? Because I remember he was pretty good at tennis, but I think he was also good at music. He said, um, yeah, uh, he started a little band called Metallica. <laughs> and I guess he was the drummer of Metallica, if, if, if I'm right, if, it's, uh, if I connect with the dots correctly. I was one time at Indian Wells with Austin Krychek and, and Raven Claussen. And Raven's in the main draw, and he's staying in the, the big hotel. And you have the choice of basically, you know, have a chauffeur. They give you a free car. And if you're in the qualies, you know, you stay at the Holiday Inn and you ride in a van. And I remember telling Austin, I said, uh, you know, all these men that are driving these vans are in their 70s. You get in the, when you get in the van take the headset off and chat these guys up. Remember one guy saying uh, that he had started the company, the tennis apparel uh, called Tail. Mm. And yeah. Mark McCormick um, said, hey, you need to sponsor this kid. He was, he's going to do really well. And, you know, so the gentleman interviewed him. And he said he was a good-looking kid. And he said he thought he was very marketable, but he's so quiet. And it was Bjorn Borg. Wow. I, I remember another guy saying to us, uh, Cash isn't king. Cash flow is king. And I think anytime you get a chance to talk to someone who's older, you really should. And I do think that that's one thing um, that I really like about England is the pub culture. You know, you go into a pub, yeah. you know, three generations um, chit-chatting. Uh, I don't think that takes place so much in the States, the pub culture. No, absolutely. I think sometimes they go in, but they don't come out. <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, yeah. I'm going to just, I, I know the, I know the drummer of Metallica, Lars Ulrich. Yes. Is that, is, that, is it his father? Yes, his father. And I'm just, I'm trying to think of, of, of the connection. I probably got the name of the player wrong, but. Uh, yeah, not Nielsen, Ulrich. Maybe it's Ulrich. Torben Ulrich. Uh, I use one of his lines all the time. He was in Boca playing the Jim, um, the Bill Reardon circuit. Jimmy Connors was a Maverick cir- circuit when he was coming up in the seventies and, you know, he was a little bit of a rebel, rebel, and he wasn't playing the ATP. And um, Torben Ulrich, you know, had this long beard and ponytail, and you know, he's forty-eight. That's years who old. I'm thinking of. Yeah, he's, that, four, yeah. he's forty-eight years yeah. old. He's being interviewed, and the woman said, "How old are you?" And he paused, and she had to ask a second time, "How old are you?" And he said, "Yes, how old am I?" And they looked at her. He said, "Do you mean chronologically?" Spiritually, intellectually, <laughs> phys- physically, because they used to say he had the legs of an eighteen-year-old. Uh, and they made that movie about him called The Wall. Yeah. Wasn't that one of um, 
Yeah. Guy de Kermadec. Gil de Kermadec, right. The, yeah. the French photographer. Um, yeah. uh, Dave Eddy is someone who really helped me uh, way back. He's the guy who invented the tube that you pick up tennis balls with. He's 10 years older than I am, but he was teaching tennis of all places in upstate New York. And that's where I was really exposed to, oh, you can make a living in, in the tennis world. And he said he was at Roland Garros and he just, you know, he just, every once in a while it was dark and he'd hear a ball be hit. Another few minutes would go by and he'd hear a ball be hit. And it was, uh, Ulrich had one ball, Torben Ulrich, and he's out on the court hitting serves in the dark. Yeah. But yeah, uh, no, he had studied philosophy and poetry and religion. No no doubt great players liked a lot of repetition. Yeah. Um, with uh, so many things with... Uh, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I think just coming back to the last eight club, I mean, just, just a really you know, unique, cool story that you have there. I think just one comment on Wimbledon is just the, the traditions. Um, and then, of course, juxtaposed to that is you know, our Grand Slam at the U.S. Open. Yeah. I know you're not far from... I know you're not far from uh, the U.S. Open where you live. Uh, and I'm sure you've been back there in recent years, but the last time I was there a few years ago, I feel like they've kind of almost destroyed all the tradition. Um, mega, the, obviously the stadium, Arthur Ashe has been, been around for a long time, but then yeah. you know, they've, they've, they've gotten rid of all the old courts. I mean, it's kind of, it doesn't even feel the same anymore. No, it's very different. I think also the uh, uh, comparing Wimbledon to the U.S. Open. I mean, Wimbledon, you really feel like you're going to a country club. I mean, it's unbelievable, like no no advertising, no promoting. I mean, you know, you, you feel it's, it's almost like an English country garden. And I think, um, you know, the U.S. Open is more bam in your face. You know, it's, it's uh, very, very commercial. Yeah. Very, very commercial. With uh, so, in introducing you, we said you had, you know, three positions in tennis. You worked for your mother, um, worked for Julian. <clears throat> and now you're a club owner. Um, yeah. Uh, tell the, the listeners about Julian Krinsky where, you know, he has the two indoor tennis clubs and, but he has this large tennis camp and it's, it started as a tennis camp. But I remember saying, yeah. saying um, one of my sons is to his SAT camp and um, just, they have a program where um, you're not now, I guess, after the pandemic, um, but it, that was a business he ran for a long time where you could study to be a sports agent at a camp on how to be a sports agent. Yeah, I think Julian, um, you know, Julian had a partner, Adrian Castelli, and I think the two of them, you know, like together, um, you know, Julian would think of the possibilities. And I think Adrian could figure out pretty quickly, you know, whether or not they made sense. But uh, when I came out in 86, there were 12 courts, um, Julian would occasionally be on the court as well. So would Adrian. Um, that was the entire camp. I think by the time I was able to get my own business, which was 2019, by that stage, I think they had close to 500 staff members. Um, Julian came up with so many great ideas. I think one of the best ones was the internship camp, you know, where kids would come from all over the world. You'd set them up at a, like an Ivy League campus, find out, you know, obviously what their, their chosen vocation was. And, um, you know, the kid would spend two to three weeks, um, you know, actually experiencing, you know, whether it was working in a, a charter school or, 
um, very well thought out. Um, but, you know, he went to uh, Canyon Ranch was another one. He had a relationship with Canyon Ranch for two or three years, and there were a lot of parents that wanted to send their kids to a health camp. You know, and then we would do the tennis. And ironically, I remember I used to go there and give brain typing, you know, uh, seminars to them, you know, to try to get them to understand, you know, the way their brains could, you know, balancing out their brains and being aware of some of their strengths and weaknesses. But, um, yeah, he, he really expanded his portfolio. And then um, I think a lot of camps really got hit hard by COVID, you know, because they were using universities and colleges as their base. Um, you know, something like ourselves where we, you know, our club is, is our main base. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it was easy for anybody, but if, you know, if you owned the land where you were um, performing or teaching, you're in a much better position. But they really got hit hard, I think, um, back in 20. Oh, Julian, big operation. I remember uh, you had a fleet of school buses that you used in the summer, a cool guy. Um, here he is. Uh along with his partner, Adrian, owner-operator of the camp, and he's driving a school bus. And, no, that's how you got to meet most of the kids, yeah. Yeah, and a Pied Piper. I've yep. in, in teasing some of the—we had so many students that went through the tennis tech program. Um, you went there early on, and it's so many people who worked for Julian that we trained. And uh, with Julian, uh, the inside comment was— uh, with Julian, the customer's always right, and with me, the customer's always wrong. Um, because at a tennis camp, it's more of an experience. I one time was at a PTR function. He was speaking, I was speaking, and I walked in, and it, you know, I was hustling to get to his presentation, and you know, such a smooth delivery. So I walk in, and he just changes his, uh, you know, his thought process, and says, you know. So what Steve does is an education. Uh, the lane that we're in now, um, we have a pretty captive audience because, um, you know, I've been working out of Brandon and Ellington's facility and the, all the contracts they have. And I've been here going on uh, five months and I've worked with one student from Florida. Actually, today was the second student player from Miami came up, but... Um, with their little brother, actually. So now I'm up to three. But I was um, teaching, and someone that uh, actually Ryan Fleming had taught, and Ryan called me up. We're doing an immersion camp. He said, "Okay, if I bring an older student to be with the teenagers." I said, "Yeah." So, seventy-year-old shows up. So I, his grandson comes out, and it's not the way we teach. It's not a problem to have a young five-year-old come out, and and you know we have more goal-oriented players that are, you know, some of them are ten years older, but. You know, we can rotate our students to teach. Uh, you know, you go spend 10 minutes with this young guy and you go spend 10 minutes with this young guy and it works out like a charm. Was Thomas Altstadt somewhere in that area at one stage? Yeah, Thomas was the director of tennis at the Delray Beach Tennis Center. Okay, I thought so, yeah. Yeah, and his, uh, his position at Buck Hill up in the Poconos. Yep, 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 was, yep, yep. That was a big part of what he he did. I. I don't know if he's still doing that, but uh, I know he spends most of his time now in Sweden. Right. Was uh, he a tennis tech? No, he was a little before you, right? No, he was a tennis tech. I actually played doubles with him for a while. Okay. Couldn't but, serve. Uh, he, was a year, he, was a, he was a year ahead of me. He never really could serve, but... Uh, no, it wasn't, yeah. yeah. But he could win matches. Yeah, no, he was a big athlete. You know, um, we would do the, the snow skiing where you jump from the single sideline to the double sideline and... No, he was an athlete, big, strong legs. 
I, we had a film of Vic Braden giving him a private lesson, but um, no, he uh, was uh, the director. He, um, he married Monique Post, who was in uh, yep. Dennis Tech. Yeah, I remember. Um, and then Michael Darcy, he uh, was his successor. He he became the, the director of the Delray Beach Tennis Center. Now um, we had a chat with Carlin Navarro, um, now mm-hmm. Wojciech, and uh, Doug Tomlin. Uh, yeah, I remember Doug. Musician, uh, and then another coach, uh, Brent Wellman, that we've trained. All three of them are teaching at the Delray Beach Tennis Center. Mm-hmm. With, um, But Julian, if you just, you know, points that come to your mind, uh, I mean, one for me is that, he, like yourself, you had so many people. You worked with them for 25 years. I mean, you know, as accountant. Yeah, I think, I think Ju- Julian, Julian was the king of Murphy's Law. Julian could make anything work. He had the most amazing ability to turn anything into anything. Um, somebody said once, an opportunist is one who can meet another is drowning, can convince them they need a bath. <laughs> and, you know, and when you think of, of like, you know, when you have 500 staff members and you have so many tentacles to your organization, there's so many things to keep, a, you know, like a finger to keep a pulse on. And he just, he could fix, like, you know, he, uh, some of the things that, you know, he probably had to deal with over the years. Um, you know, really, I, I, I learned a ton from him, really did. Actually, Adrian as well. You know, Julian Julian could see the possibilities. He could fix things. And Adrian, you know, very quickly could see if, you know, two plus two made four or, you know, go in a different direction. But um, probably one of the best doubles teams <laughs> I've ever seen, you know, and their ability to, to handle crises in business. I think the progression, um, you were training the coaches, but then you went out on a tour for several summers where were you were, you were working in Philadelphia, based in Philadelphia, yep. but you weren't there in the summer. Um, but they had a really long orientation. And most tennis camps don't have an orientation. But one year yep. I was there, you know, you go for four days and train the coaches. He had a young uh, gentleman, uh, my memory's right, he was from Puerto Rico, and he was playing the guitar for the kids. So then he did it for the coaches in the evening. And, you know, Julian met, met this young man was so impressed with him. He said, we need to make you part of the tennis camp. And he came, he came to the tennis camp and he's part of the orientation. Um, and the thing was, is that basically the way, how you become a great guitar player is you practice until your fingers bleed. And the kid had no lessons and, you know, he just was self-taught and just was an incredible guitarist. Um, but, that that's just the way you know. Talk about imagination is like I, we need to make this kid part of the camp, and yeah. and, and then he did. With, uh, Actually, that that was another gift that he had. I think Julian had a great gift to see talent, like to see somebody he could he could very quickly pick out what a person's skill set was or what their direction was. And uh, I was going to ask you with five hundred staff members, and you, like you said, you touched on this uh, just a little. Um, the different tentacles. Anything that sticks out as far as quality control for all that? Obviously, the orientations, uh, the lengthy orientations, a part of that. But when you have, such yeah, a- is I think that each group, um, the the head of each group, you know, um, he'd have the center of the organization, but each each part of his camp or his organization would have a very strong advocate. Mm. And I can just remember, you know, like even as the years progressed, you know, with all the the crazy things going on and. 
trying to make sure everybody was safe is, is the number of lectures and the um, the degree to which people were made aware of the responsibility to keep people safe. You know, um, they really put a lot of work into it, you know, over the years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy, but I think the fact that they broke each camp into like a team, you know, of, of educators and leaders together, um, you know, I I, uh, I know I've heard a lot of really really bad stories from different camps, but never heard you know too many really bad stories from there. I think they were able to um, to navigate that pretty well. Mm. But I think a lot of it was the training that they did at the uh, at the beginning, and probably you know and during. I mean, I remember we used to every week used to have like a hour or two hours, you know, a week where everybody had to get together and you know go through things and check systems and you know, make sure everything was working as it should. You know, Lots of checks and balances. A motto of Vic Braden, laugh and win. I used to tell Vic, I don't understand the laugh part. <laughs> but the one thing is if you're working camps and the people come in for a week versus like, okay, we're working with these kids day in and day out, year after year, and their parents are really laying it on the line for them and the kids on the lazy side, it's it's not it's not that easy a, a deal to accept. But Julian, like Braden, had the sense of enjoyment you know, I think it was uh, so many reasons, you know, you could say just sense of enjoyment, but also too, I think he was on a low carb diet and he was very, for his age, very fit. And when Braden passed away, we put forth a great effort to uh, purchase or save. We we're going to donate the Vic Braden library. So I remember going to Philadelphia, Julian introduced me to a few of his billionaire friends and it just didn't work out where both of them were at the age where they said, well, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have stepped up to the plate. Um, now, um, not to digress, but off on a tangent, that the Tennis Channel bought the library. And Mike McLaughlin, we've interviewed, uh, said that he just, just was informed that they're starting to uh, digitize some of the old footage. And But it, it, that really should be in the hands of the right people. Um, yeah. You know, with uh, they have looked through it for... You know, the documentary made on labor, documentary uh, that's outcoming or upcoming on Arthur Ashe. But uh, go, go ahead, Brandon. More on Julian and more on business. Well, it sounds like there is. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, just uh, just coming back to having a hierarchy, um, you know, having that, that accountability, like you said, heads of the, heads of the program, um, the orientation, uh, obviously, um, you know, Jul- Julian being a person who could, you know, have that intuition about someone's talent is, is really, really special. Um, no, it was. And, and what were you going to say? Uh, go ahead. I think the way that, that, that also, you know, like for instance, on, on the tennis side, um, uh, there were two of us that used to direct it. Another guy, uh, Arvind, who I know, you know, pretty well, Steve, you know, Arvind was really, really good at organizing and, um, you know, I, I would be much more on what was taught and how it was taught and how they put the groups together. Um, but even there, you know, like in recognizing similar skills and different skills that could combine really, really well. I think um, that was definitely something Julian was able to foresee and make a part of his structure. Well, we have to get into uh, talking about your partner, Vic, and you, you know, the briefcase, the Ferris State guy, and you're the tennis tech guy, so you get the ball hopper in there. Because, you know, we tried our very best, but we really were much stronger on the ball hopper side than on the briefcase side. But Arvin, Arvin Don, I was in the corner at um, the tennis 
tennis courts. I can just picture up on the hill. What's the name of that beautiful D3 school um, where his camp was based? Whose camp? Julian's in Philadelphia. D3, I think it was um, Bryn Mawr College. Haverford? Haverford, there you go. Haverford, Haverford College. Yeah, Haverford was the base. So we're we're on on the course at Haverford, and I've started the camp and or the training of the coaches with some local players from the junior program before the boarding camp or the summer camp starts. So Arvin's approaching the courts and I tell the, tell the juniors, or excuse me, I tell the, the instructors that are from all over the world, I said, watch this. I said, Arvin's going to come down to the courts and he's going to switch the two brothers. I had two brothers on the court tossing balls to each other. And, um, and, we, and all the coaches were laughing. They said, how did you know that? I said, because Arvin is in the experience business and he's going to make it fun. And he, he just knew that the older brother and younger brother, okay, let's switch this around. And I was just going to say, I'm, okay, I'm going to create a problem and let the problem blow up and go, you guys need it before each other. You guys need to practice with each other. So, you know, sometimes, you know, I had the background with groups to say, okay, make this really work, make it smooth, make it easier, uh, make it fun, make it cooperative as I'll switch the brothers around. But, um, yeah, he, he's another one, uh, like yourself. Uh, what's the name of the count is Steve, right? Uh, Steve Robertson? No, there's Steve Robertson. But what's the name? What was the name of the gentleman? He was the accountant forever. Tim. Oh, Timmy. Timmy Farrell, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people that were just worked there forever. You know, that's... No, they were. That's yeah. a, that means something's, something's going well. You know, it's not, yeah. not in and out and quick turnover. And Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I'd love to uh, talk about your current uh, position, uh, owner-operator of the, the Upper Dublin Tennis Club in Philly, right? Upper Dublin Sports Center, yep. Um, and uh, Tennis Match Academy is, um, you know, our, our training component. But um, as Steve was saying, uh, it was kind of unique. Both Victor Urzua, my partner, um, and myself, we actually met at Julian's. And in fact, uh, Julian and myself recruited Victor from Ferris State. I mean, I, I love to remind him of that. And um, yeah, we became partners in uh, 2019. But of course, his background much more in the management, um, you know, which really, if I look at it now, um, you know, really our positions have still stayed very much that way. Um, although we both share a, a very strong passion for teaching tennis, but um, he's very, very organized. Not, not um, sorry to interrupt, but not 2019, 2009, right? Um, yeah. I'm saying 2009. Yeah, sorry, uh, 2009. Yeah, no yeah. My bad. No problem. <laughs> exactly. You see the the, uh, the math side. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's it's actually been uh, it's been a very unique opportunity because um, you know both of us having spent a lot of time studying, both knew that we had a lot to learn and. Um, I think one of the, the the great awakenings was a, was about a week after coming to to Upper Dublin as a partner. I pretty much understood everything Julian had done to that point that I had not understood before. You know, a lot of the decisions you have to make, employees, uh, the organising, the staff. Um, I learned a lot and I got very lucky, you know, to have somebody um, on the journey that is as knowledgeable as uh, Victor is. On the business side. On the, on the club management side? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've had to learn a lot quickly. Um, and I think that the two of us kind of balance each other out 
you know, um, strengths and weaknesses. Um, I'm probably more the big picture. He's sees more the detail. Um, although we both, you know, often when we start our business, we decide to take the two words idealistic and realistic and try to use those to balance, you know, like every business decision we made because a lot of our dreams and things we wanted to accomplish were obviously very idealistic. And, but very often to keep a business running, you have to be realistic. And uh, we really use that as our uh, gauge in a lot of the decisions we make. Actually, a South African, uh, Raven Klassen, his father, Joppy, we've talked about having both of them on a podcast. His father said to me, I really respect what you do, but it's very idealistic. You're trying, yeah. to, make, you're trying to make anybody you meet a tennis player. What I would do is pick out the few and, and, and you know, the ones that you just know can make a go of it. A cheer from uh, a football um, high school game. My son went to the Jesuit school, which is a little more expensive, a few more snobs. And there's Tampa Catholic, and there was a cheer. Yeah, Tampa Catholic would score, and the Jesuit fans would yell out, it's okay, one day you'll work for us anyway. <laughs> and the Ferris State students... They would get in arguments with the tennis tech students this was back in the 80s and 90s. And, and it was really a heavyweight against a lightweight. And at that time, when a tennis tech student would talk to a fair state student about forehands and backhands, I mean, it was, you know, just our connection with Braden and Vandermeer and Van Horn. Yeah. Um, but that's what some fair staters, uh, I, I shared that cheer with them. Uh, and it's like, yeah, okay, one day you'll work for us anyway. So... Uh, you 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 basically need to pay attention to both the uh, the briefcase and the ball hopper, not just be one dimensional. No, we do, and I think even in the training of our staff, and and we've had we you know we had some coaches for uh, you know with us almost since the beginning of the journey, and some of them not. Um, but uh, you know, I think uh, pretty much everybody that comes to work with us, you end up learning a lot. Uh, you'll know a lot more when you leave than when you came. Mm. That's great. Um, so I know kinda... you you really embraced brain typing, influenced uh, through Braden. You know, I could go back yep. and just ask, um, you know, people that you played tennis with or people who were, you were trained with, um, Scott Stewart, those three Swedes, Tomas, Tomas, and the third one. What was his name? Tomas. Uh, Johan Swenson. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, you know, Toli Marinkovic, but you could actually brain type. Uh, yep. Um, do you use that when you hire people? I mean, tell us a little bit. I know you're a big fan of brain typing. Um, I think like anything, it's a tool, and I would always be grateful, you know, having learned about it. And absolutely, I use it every day in coaching, <coughs> um, especially, uh, I mean, in hiring, I feel like for a lot of the coaches, they've got to have a you know, work ethic. Um, but I think a lot of the feelers are much more empathetic, exactly. you know, in understanding the plight of a a student. Um, yeah, we have a podcast on brain typing. You're an INFP. Um, is Victor yeah. Asusa is he a ENTJ? I think so. <laughs> That's good. That 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 should work then. We're um, an ENTJ. Uh, Billy Jean King and John Newcomb. Um, they cannot not lead where, um, but it, it's, it's, it's amazing how many leaders are ENTJs. You know, you got to get the, got to get the trains. On. And there are, very, there are very few INFPs in coaching. You may have noticed. In fact, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I'm an ENFJ where I like things to be organized and, but you know, the, the empathy, that's, that's a big part of it. But um, no, it is a great tool. I think that's a great, great way to sum it up. Um, doesn't put anybody in a box, but, um, and, and it's good to have a team where everybody's not the same. You know, I think if you can have a group of coaches where, um, you know, you can have, you know, definitely P's and J's. I have to remind myself all the time. Yeah. You know, I meet a, a nine-year-old and I'm just thinking, where's his headed when they're 18? You know, I'm an N too, so I'm really thinking down the road. And I feel a kid's pain. You know, they might be pained to be standing in place and do static balance, but I know the pain that they're going to face down the road if they don't have ball striking skills. And yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I've just seen it so many times. We, we don't advertise. I mean, I don't even have a business card, but you know, we've had so many kids be number one in college tennis and we have all the documentation and say, this is what they did. But we've, we've worked yeah. with hundreds of kids that didn't get to the level where they could play college tennis because they, they weren't the, the long range thinker. And it's amazing how right. parents, the opposites attract and, and the kid becomes a master manipulator and, with, um, that is, but I think I think if you understand a little bit more of of I mean I can remember going into coaching at the beginning. Um, there are three players that don't play tennis anymore from my early years of coaching, and I still remember their names. And I remember two of them were like one ended up becoming you know the number one player in South Africa, and the other one who was the number one player in South Africa ended up like never picking up a racket. And I always remember looking back and thinking, I wonder if I should have handled them both the same because they were so different. And, um, you know, like for instance, uh, Jason Weir Smith's an ESTJ. And, um, you know, I remember when we were out on the tour is that very often he, 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 he likes a plan, but he doesn't adapt, always adapt that quickly to changing variables. And the number of drills we used to do just to sort of build his spatial awareness to get him to take a risk, you know, have a little bit of fun. Um, he'll off. We've got some good stories with that, but, um, you know, I think sometimes even the type of drill that you'll spend more time doing, you know, uh, if you have a J, again, they don't always see the changing variables in front of them because they're so driven to make that, that decision early. And, um, you know, I think it's definitely helped me a lot in coaching and in, in just seeing, you know, that this particular player, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. The goal is the same, but, um, you know, it might just go in a different direction. Why, why is it that you said there's not many – uh, or at least in your belief, there are not many INFPs in coaching. Um, maybe I think it was sensitive idealist. Um, I think that uh, you know a lot of the time in in cracking the whip. Uh, I know for me, I can do it, but I'm much I'm probably much more in tune with how people feel than necessarily how they think. Um, so. I mean, I, I remember watching Cedric Pierlin, who was an INFP playing at, at uh, the U.S. Open. I actually went to watch him in the finals. I remember him framing two balls going up to the top of the stadium. And I thought to myself, I know exactly, you know, what he's thinking right now, what he's, you know, kind of what he's going through. But, um, you know, I think a lot of the time, look, in coaching, um, it definitely helps to be extrovert. You know, when you're around people all the time, if that's energizing you and, and a lot of your energy is coming from being around people, um, that really helps, I think, um, the ability to think. You know, if, if you're a dominant thinker, it, you know, it, 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 it's it's easier to make objective decisions. I say easier, you know, you're more driven towards doing it. But 
I think, like Steve says, you know, like kind of knowing the different, in some ways it liberates you because you know what you have to work on, you know? Right. Very strong feeler, you know, sometimes, hey, I'm being a little bit too soft on this decision or, um, you know, I'm, I'm put figuring too much feeling, just make a decision, you know, be a little more objective. Um, but I find, especially with kids, you know, um, probably as an INFP, when I walk out there, if I see a kid, you know, who is very introvert, um, you know, a lot of the time I will make extra amends to try to help that kid, mm. you know, to help shape their perception and how they see things and, and kind of bring them out. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge positive. Um, is there anything you think over time, do you think that say all the experiences you've had with working with kids and teaching tennis, have you become more extroverted? A hundred percent. But I think it's, it's more learned than natural. I mean, still the natural inclination. When I get in the car after I've spoken to you guys, I will switch off completely, mm. you know, recharge. Um, and I thought that was one of the, the, the best parts of need noggle, you know, when he put it together, the introvert didn't necessarily mean shy and retiring. It meant that you can do lots of things, but you have to recharge. And that's why I think like, especially as a coach, if you're an E, you can go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, not that an introvert can't do that, but, um, definitely an extrovert has the natural ability, you know, to, to keep going. I think the INFP, um, I like the Bear Bryant story, the legendary football coach from Alabama, where he got all his assistants in the room and said, I'm sick of being the only grizzly bear here. I'm working with too many, <laughs> too many teddy bears. And you know, I've called you a teddy bear before. Yeah, um, you have. With um, uh, Roberto Calla is back here helping and he worked with, with me for 15 years. I think I've known him 20 plus. Very, very quiet guy. We have this... Um, book uh, narrative on our website page called journey to the truth. And there's a chapter about Roberto and Barry Hint wrote that he can roar like a lion, you know, so never very quiet, quiet, quiet. So just a side story that we've, we need to get another Toyota Sienna. So today we, I picked up a Toyota Sienna, which is not easy to do, but you know, I was just going to get another Honda and, and uh, Roberto roars like a lion, get a Toyota <laughs> is that Roberto who used to be with you in Hillsborough many years ago yeah, and he yeah. had like a big passion for soccer Oh, when yeah. Chad Berryhill was in the picture yeah yeah so uh, he's like to me with soccer I know Flanagan knows him really well he's like Bobby Orr <laughs> yeah he's just amazing magician with a soccer ball but yeah he's uh, I actually introduced him introduced Roberto yesterday to our general manager here Glennon and I said this is Roberto. He was one of our coaches in Tampa, and he's also the best soccer player I've ever, ever met. <laughs> you know, oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, you'd have to tell me he was a player from your program. You've sent so many people to me. This young guy, he his first name is Josh. I get it going. He used to love Roddick. I mean, he he wore his clothes. Josh Rottenberg. Yeah, yeah. His father was a hockey goalie. So yep. we have a soccer game going. And little kids and big kids. I remember Jeff Lewis, great guy. He, he was felt so bad. He just kicks a ball hard as he can. And he little eight year old girl was playing. He just and he, she broke her arm. Parents were really cool about it. So anyway, um, Josh is just too into it. He's getting too rough with all the little kids. And Roberto, he tells him once, tells him twice, tells him a third time. And next, and I I didn't watch that often. But once cell phones came out, it's like okay, I'll make phone calls and I'll walk around the soccer field watching this being entertained as I'm on the phone. And next thing I just look over and, and Josh is flipping in the air and he lands right on his back. 
And he handled it so well, he got up, he goes, Roberto, you have to show me how you did that. <laughs> <laughs> With, uh, no, he's, yeah, he's actually, a, he's a newscaster now. Yeah, down, um, down, in, I think. down in Alabama. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been all over. No, Robin Anderson was there playing, and he got all excited watching her play, and he called up, and he just said, I want to get back in tennis. And I, I think after some phone calls, he was so far down the road with his career. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many students work for Julian Krinsky and then how many students that you, you sent to us. Um, so many kids from mainline Philadelphia, I mean, they wanted to uh, uh, be an astronaut, be a senator, be a Harvard graduate, be a Wimbledon champion. Taking all AP classes, just um, some super achievers, and it's like yeah. um, I remember two uh, young boys that their father ran three miles every day, and these guys just never ran, and they both fell short of playing. Uh, they worked hard and they hit the ball well, but they just they just didn't have the miles on their legs. Um, I think it's it's so easy to go back in time and just think, okay, this kid and that kid and. Um, it, it's actually such a privilege to be a teacher and you learn so much through your students. Um, no, absolutely. Do you remember Vivek Stalem? Yeah. Yeah. So I always remember one, one of the most simple, really powerful stories is that he came down to train with you. You took him out to the, uh, somebody took him to the supermarket to get him to pick up his food for the week. He came back and I think there were a couple of guys there from one of the East Block countries. And every morning he woke up they had taken all his milk and all his cereal. And I think this happened for two or three days until he said something to you and you turned around to him and said, Vivek, if somebody takes your milk and cereal, you gotta tell them not to take your milk and cereal. And it kinda like changed the kid's life. You know, it's like, whoa, I never thought of that. You know, and you look at these kids sometimes that are so smart and so bright, but uh, you know, so many of like the life lessons of, uh, you know. Yeah, you, you went to Georgetown, right? Uh, um, no, he went to, uh, Bowden? I think Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon. Okay. Yeah, and he's in the financial world. Very, doing very, very well. With, uh, maybe I should get him on that 22.2%. <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to collect that from all my students. Uh, Vivek, uh, I believe Vivek is the person who, the way he hung on a broom and he walked backwards and he swept between his legs walking backwards. So we cleaned this place with 6,000 square feet. You know, Brandon knew the place well, and we cleaned it on a Sunday afternoon. And, and then Monday, I tell everybody, we're getting up early tomorrow, half hour early, and we're cleaning the house again. Everybody's looking at each other. Place is spick as bad. And uh, we, we, just wanted to, we just wanted to get the camera ready to film this guy sweeping. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, somebody comes, they'll stay with us for two, three weeks, 24-7, and in a lot of ways, we know more about the kid than the pros is working with them after school. Um, it's amazing. Parents don't know how much they do for their kids. You know, they don't know how to take out the garbage. They don't know how to, you know, get peanut butter off a knife. Uh, with, uh, yeah, I think it's time for me to uh, try to find a way to uh, just get back in total tennis education. I guess maybe I was ne ne never just in that. But uh, Brandon started with Upper Dublin. Um, that's a big operation when you talk about 10 indoor courts. That's a little yeah, 10 indoor courts, um, two, two, uh, actually got four play courts, um, in two different bubbles. Um, so it's about, it's about 10 acres, um, about 13 full-time coaches. 
uh, have a sports turf in the back. We have a gym. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. A, fit, a fitness center type gym. We do. We do. It's just a small. It's, it's a small boutique gym. Um, but uh, actually, even the name Sports Center was, you know, originally when realizing that we have quite a lot of land here, you know, is is trying to go into to other areas as well. We we have quite a few like lacrosse teams and soccer teams and what have you that that, that use our turf to train on. In fact, we even have lacrosse teams occasionally on a a weekend that'll come and play in our turf on the clay. Um, it's great for the clay; it aerates it, you know, their cleats. So that that worked out well. Mm. Hmm. With uh, it's got to be a whole different mindset to think about replacing the roof or something like that. That's a little bit more of an overhead than the overhead that you no, it's, you it's, yeah. No, I mean we actually we got hit really hard by that hurricane, so we're actually in the process of doing exactly that. But yeah, um, the club was built in 1968, which interestingly enough, it was built purely for tennis contracts. So I guess back in 68, so many people wanted to play tennis. I think there was one coach here, um, and they had six indoor tennis courts and six indoor racquetball courts. And um, pretty much a person at the desk who would just check them in for their contracts because that was the only way you could play tennis. Hmm. And, uh, you know, now when I think uh, probably contracts are maybe 15 20%, you know, and uh, lots of coaching and, you know, a lot of stuff going on with the academy. And what about pickleball? Pickleball, somebody asked me the other day how my mother would feel about pickleball. <laughs> um, and it's interesting. I think she would say she loves the fact that racket sports are becoming competitive in the mainstream. But um, definitely down where you guys are, um, and, and really like on the West Coast, I was there like a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, the one place had 64 pickleball courts over a thousand people playing there a day and only two people administrating it, which kind of reminded me of the way contracts used to be. But um, there are definitely a lot of people playing pickleball, but I think racket sports, you know, as a whole, um, Padel is becoming so popular all over the world. I know in South Africa, they're building courts left, right and center. And it really looks like tennis has been on a big uptick, you know, since COVID started. No, someone said, so, I think it was uh, Brandon's, uh, general manager that there was, he told me there's four hours of uh, pickleball on the tennis channel and that the tennis channel may become the racket channel or even the USTA national campus may become a racket center, not a tennis center. Uh, but yeah, I'm all for pickleball an associated Brandon's uh, gentleman who has five squash courts right here in the neighborhood of uh, the FM tennis performance center. He said, what he didn't like about pickleball is it's invading tennis, but I don't, I think if you can't beat him, join him. Now, I don't understand that much about it. I went to one pickleball clinic, and someone, someone reminded me again that you can't go past that line, and they call it the kitchen. But you know, I think that the people that we're teaching, I think it's a way to bring the volley back to tennis, uh, is have tennis kids sign up for pickleball money tournaments. Let's just, let's just show up and, uh, you know, you serve underhand, but it, it's very much, uh, you know, your mother could uh, expand upon um, Althea Gibson, now she started with the perforated paddle and played plat not platform but tennis but paddle tennis, and what a great way to learn to volley. Um, so, no, I, I live right next to this park, and I mean it's it's packed, 
packed with people playing pickleball. And there'd be no, there are a lot of people. Ba- yeah. Basically, most of them are people my age, between sixty-five and dead. But you know, I you know I think to get young people playing it, um, yeah, you can't beat them. Join them. Padella. I think on the west coast, uh, west coast of Florida, I think they're actually starting to introduce it into the school system as well. You know, I have I've seen Padel played by 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 basically beginners hackers, but I've only seen it you know on TV or on YouTube. Um, are you would you consider? I mean, what would you have to do to have that at your facility? Um. I don't know. Um, one of the, the biggest academies in, in Philly, um, uh, HPTA, um, I think they had eight courts at Riverside, and I think they've taken four of them away um, to turn them into Padel courts, which I honestly hadn't heard too much about Padel before that. But, you know, after hearing that, um, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, growing. Jason Weir-Smith, uh, we were talking about earlier on, um, you know, they used to coach is now the director at um, West Town, which I guess is the Flushing Meadow, the old US Open. And he got the job, I think, about nine months ago. But he was saying that they, you know, no longer really hire a tennis coach. You have to be a racket sports director. And he did, a, I think it was like a, a full week course on all the different racket sports. You know, so that nowadays, if you're looking for a job in a country club, <clears throat> you're probably going to have to teach at least paddle, padel, pickleball, tennis, and if you're on the East Coast, probably squash. So you're more of a racket sports director. I was one time, than, uh, I was one time director of racket sports for uh, TCA, Midtown Tennis, and I was asked about squash. I said, I can spell it, but I can't cook it. And, <laughs> and, and so what I did was I hired the coach from Cornell, which was, he wasn't too far away, and he trained, uh, actually, Joe McMahon, who... Brandon and I both know, but yeah, Forest Hills, that's a cool place. Um, it, it could use a little TLC, a little tender loving care, old, old facility, but it wasn't too long ago. Um, somebody who I've met through Arvin Arvindon, um, Ram Ramanathan, I was with him at the US Open. I said, you and I are getting on a train and we're going to go to watch the uh, finals of the world team tennis finals. And that year, Klassen, he, he got the MVP award and his team won and then um, had him sit down and you know, talk to Raven. Um, but yeah, actually talking to the, you know, something that we should still do is uh, we should secure a college campus um, or a, a prep school and, and they have a camp. Um, you know, someone has said that, you know, we, we may have the largest uh, tennis school in the U S with all these coaches that we've trained, yep. you know, but, but it'd be good to have a way. We've always talked about having uh reunion one year we talked about having the use open and found out that that's really the worst place to do it because people because the cost of being in the city people stay all over the city and then everybody wants to go watch a certain match um what's coming up is something i like to watch i don't watch basketball at all until it's the final four and the final final four they have a great coaching convention but but why it works so well is they know that they've got the two semifinals and the final. And so everything else works around that. You know, that's what makes it very difficult for parents. Uh, when you get into tennis and your kid plays, the whole weekend is gone. It's not like your kid's playing soccer and okay, the game starts at two and you're, you're done at five. No. But it just keeps going and going because there's singles and there's doubles and there's rainouts. And um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Go ahead, Brandon. 
Um, yeah, coming back to your your uh, your club in Philly, uh, would love to hear a little more about your junior academy. Um, <clears throat> we probably have about three hundred plus kids, um, anywhere from uh, you know like completely new to tennis um, through to um, our select program, which are most of those kids are, are going to be playing college ball. Um, so we're pretty diversified, um, you know, within the different groups and, uh, each group kind of has a, 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 a leader, um, who really understands the needs of the kids that they're with. Um, probably unlike any place where there's warm weather, I mean, it's, it's such a battle for courts. Um, I was saying to Steve a while ago, you know, like trying to get kids to hit enough balls, you know, is always a challenge for us. Um, on the East coast. And I think that one of the things that actually does make things work is, you know, for a lot of kids, they have to play in a lot of different places to get good. You know, I think we're probably about as close as you're going to get to being able to do everything in the same place, you know, having the gym. Um, and, uh, we're pretty close to the turnpike, you know, so we do get some kids coming through from New Jersey and, and different places, but, you know, it's so tough to, 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 to hit enough, to, to do enough reps, you know, out here. And, uh, you know, sometimes the only way kids can do that is, is to like, you know, get up really early in the morning. Um, you know, one of the things that's very strong in our area is, is academics. You know, I think this is one of the best academic areas you can be in. So parents definitely, you know, have the approach where kids are 100% students first, you know, and athletes second, which absolutely agree with that. Um, but, uh, so we, you know, we have all the different ranges. I think we've had about 48 kids in the last 12 years, um, that have gone on to college ball, um, anywhere from, uh, quite a few of the kids go to division three, um, Amherst Williams, but, uh, you know, all these kids are really, really smart, but they also, you know, we hope that they leave us with a, a very strong passion to continue playing tennis and desire, you know, to want to compete and, and play. One thing with, keep division, with Division Three, uh, Peter Smith, who coached USC for so many years, I think he was at Long Beach State before that where he played, could be off on that, but you know, he said Division Three. that's the real soul of college tennis. There's no recruiting. I tell kids in Division One, I say, okay, the coach runs a three-hour practice, but then he spends four hours in the same day trying to get someone to take your place. And Division Three is very competitive, um, especially at the top. And when you know, you think of some Division Three teams can beat Division One teams with, um, but you have to do so well as a student athlete. So you yeah. you don't have that many. You know, I don't like the term homeschoolers. The non-traditional scheduling, like say your club probably a little slower between 11 and three. So you don't have that many kids that are homeschooled? No, in fact, we don't have any kids um, that are homeschooled. Um, we have a lot of ladies, um, a lot of adult teams <clears throat> that play in the mornings. So I think we had something like 48 different teams playing here, you know, like within a year. So, so really, uh, you know, there, there are a number of different things going on at the same time. Um, most of the junior training is, is in the afternoons, um, some of them early morning, and uh, obviously very heavy on weekends if they're not playing in tournaments. But uh, the other thing actually you were saying earlier on about, 
you know, playing in a tournament, how it could take you a whole weekend. Uh, UTR events seem to be becoming more and more popular and a much easier way to go somewhere for three or four hours, get two good matches. Um, one of the kids at the regionals this last weekend, I mean, it was so well organized, so well set up. We were able to watch all the matches. Um, they were streaming them. But, um, you know, you could definitely see where um, the adjustments are being made. A lot of the entry-level tournaments, you know, where they're only playing to four games, you know, they're shortening the scoring and, um, you know, trying to make it an easier experience for the family. I mean, so, some of the families you have where there's a, you know, a son and a daughter and they have to go to different parts of the state, you feel terrible. Like sometimes, you know, the, the parents may not see each other for a weekend, uh, you know, in some of the, the higher-level tournaments. Yeah, I know you were at Julian for 25 years. Uh, I'm sure it varied, but I thought it was interesting how he had the coaches just coach. The coaches weren't counselors. In other words, when the coaching was done, you were done. You didn't have to work the dorms and, and such. Um, with your staff, do you have people that are on court, work off court? Um, I know that's perhaps idealistic to have someone be a floater where they can cover the front desk and cover the ladies. No, we actually, we have, it's completely separate. Um okay. You know, we have like a, a, a management team. Um, we have uh, people that, that basically are trained purely in the desk. Um, we have a we have an individual person who does handles all the contracts. That's purely their area. And actually, they booked now. There are a lot of pickleball contracts coming in as well, which is very interesting. I mean, I think since August we started to we actually brought in a, a full time pickle pickleball pro. Um, guys, excellent. But I think we have over three hundred people playing almost a week, you know, playing pickleball. But, uh, I mean, there's one guy who plays pickleball for 30 hours a week. I don't know how the guy does it, but, you know, some of these pickleball people have figured out how to put in the hours. You know, they really play a lot. Basically, it's wiffle ball. You know, this is when I grew up, uh, you know, if you weren't good enough to hit a baseball, you could hit a wiffle ball. You know, then it really worked out for me. We had a baseball diamond in the backyard, and they came up with this huge bat. You know, it was as big as a watermelon, big as a watermelon. So that's when I could start to hit when I was eight, nine years old. Go ahead, Brandon. Where do you find your role being mostly kind of day to day? You're still on the court. You're in the office. Um, I, you know, it's, I, I love being on the court. Uh, I mean, I, I think at this stage, like the court is is really my my sanity. It's my my happy place. So any excuse I find to be on the court. Um, I tend to join a lot with some of the higher level programs, you know, whenever I can, you know, get out there and, and participate and join. Um, so I probably spend about 20 to 25 hours a week on the court and uh, would never want to not. Um, I think if I stop coaching, I'd really want to get out of it, you know, like completely. But I must say the, uh, you know, running, running the club and, and dealing with all the different parts, um, I do enjoy training staff. I really do like people. Um, but, uh, yeah, I spend, spend a lot of hours, you know, talking to parents, um, talking to kids. How about Victor Sousa? Does he get on the court? Yeah, Victor is, is, uh, Victor is, he, he, uh, he manages the adults. So a lot of our ladies teams, um, the team practices, um, the matches. So he, he's much more involved with the adults. Uh, but he's also very skilled at, I mean, we've done a lot of building. We've probably changed our lights three times since I've been here. You know, we've gone, um, he, he's very skilled at, at being able to keep the facility up to date because she's pretty old. Um, 
So, in fact, we have four full-time maintenance guys. That's a lot of guys. You know, I think when I was back with, with Julian, we had one maintenance person. You know, we have four four guys and trying to get the clay ready in the morning. And um, they're very skilled. Uh, at least two of them are very, very skilled, you know, where they can change things, fix things, build things. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're in the middle of building a couple of outdoor pickleball courts at the moment, which, oh, uh, you know. So you've known you've known your partner Victor for how long? Um, about eighteen years, and we were roommates for probably the first two years, which is is pretty good. You, you learn a lot of uh, good and bad habits in that time. But mm-hmm. um, you know, we've we've known each other for a long time, and and he left Unions, I think, probably about eighteen years ago. Okay. Were, and um, were there ever any? Uh, lengthy or heated discussions about say for example how to teach the forehand um he became pretty when when we were roommates um back with julian i really introduced we, we started to talk about Vic braden a lot so in actual fact now in our teaching if you took a lesson with him or me we both started following a lot of the same information um you know ironically like the meeting we just had this monday was uh, really going through all the efficiencies, you know, like with a lot of the coaches, but uh, we're very much on the same page. You know, you've been in Philadelphia for so long, and I know uh, Jim Klein, Ryan Reedy, Nick DeVore, yep. Steve Young, there's so many. And then that's just through us, but then through uh, Julian Krinsky. Um, have you worked with the UCA at all over all your years in tennis? I did. Um Actually, I was the uh, the head of the coaches commission for the uh, for the middle states for a couple of years. You know, when I came out here and used to do a lot of the, uh, I was quite involved with some of the sectional and national training camps. They used to bring me in as a you know as one of the coaches. So uh, um, I think I remember Alex Kuznetsov was one of the kids that we used to spend a lot of time with. And um, Legacy, um, the old Arthur Ashe Youth Tennis Center, it used to be one of the main centers where we. Um, would train them. But, Maybe, uh, I remember from Philadelphia, Craig, we're like David DeLucia, who's at uh, Penn with David Getz. And then you got Lisa Raymond, who the Bryan brothers used to call money. Uh, <laughs> they, back in the day, they were influenced uh, by Julian to a certain degree, correct? Yeah. David DeLucia was pretty involved with Julian. Um, and actually I tell you, he was really involved with uh, Lisa Raymond was Oliver. Messily, you know, is with you. I think Ollie was her coach for about um, two or three years, her and Renee Stubbs, before he became uh, Mary Pierce's coach. Yeah, it's, uh, but, uh, it's, you know, I know you had Ollie come spend time with me, you know, 20 some years ago. Then his, his daughter came uh, for uh, maybe three weeks this past summer. I mean, with the pandemic, I have to stop and think about when summer was. But um, yeah. with, uh, he has a student here now um, that he's helping now. It was, Great kid. Um, yeah, they both hit the ball so well. I mean, I think way back when, uh, Bobby Bayless, when he got David DeLucia, Notre Dame was never really as strong in tennis until they had him come in. He was a top U.S. player. Right. I, I don't really know him, although I've seen him. I mean, I saw him play in juniors and college, and he hit the ball really well. And Lisa Raymond, uh, you know, she played at the University of Florida when Andy Brandy was there. One time I was with the team for like three days and she only lost a couple matches. And I remember one was high altitude and kind of an upset up in the mountains up in Salt Lake. And um, 
you know, I think the University of Florida, they've won so many national championships over the years on the women's side, and they just won a couple of years ago on the men's side. But um, first thing I would do if I was a, the coach at the University of Florida, I was coaching the women's team, I'd say, okay, we're just going to watch Lisa Raymond tapes, and this is how we're playing doubles. And she had a hell of a slush. Yeah, I mean, she's top 10 in the world. I think that in, the, in singles, I mean, she hit more, more top off the backhand side, but she just hit the ball so well. I mean, people, you know, and we use the term great base. It's, it's solid fundamentals. And, um, you know, I think coming back to your, your mother, um, granted that, you know, fence to fence, 180 degree swing. But years ago, people taught. It wasn't game-based. It wasn't action method. They taught, oh, here's the ready position. Here's the unit turn. Here's the backswing. Here's the contact. Here's the follow through. And, you know, certainly it was a 180 degree swing on a, you know, court less than 20 degrees. But yeah, that, that structure has gone away where there is no ready position anymore. Um, worked with a young girl today that she's got an extreme grip on the forehand side. So when she turns, she's not going to have an option on that, re- on the return where she can, you know, have the racket set up where she could play a drop shot. She in a rally, she can come in and take a conventional approach volley and, you know, look at Djokovic's ready position, or you think about Roger Federer is on the turn. So that old school, new school, there is no school. Well, and you remember that thing at Djokovic's coach when she came out to the U.S. Open. I sent you that article ages ago. She actually, first thing she did when she lost, when she was a player, went out and bought a Vic Braden book. Yeah, no, so you want you you wonder how much influence, um, you know. No, I'm very, th- th- very thankful to all the students I've worked with, like yourself and. You sent that to me, so right away. Maybe you sent me the book, but it's not. When I got the book, yeah, it's page nineteen, maybe page seventeen. I'm going to bet on page nineteen. And she said she was so fortunate. The childhood coach, Yelena, should be able to tell your last name. So fortunate to lose in the first round because I went into the city and I bought tennis books in particular, Vic Braden books. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, it's very interesting that. Uh, I think Vic is, you know, the late Vic Braden is still ahead of his time. You know, that featured article, Sports Illustrated, um, you, people get a hold of it, they get to a library, uh, May 10th, 1976, Tennis is in the Stone Ages. And it's, I think it's gone further backwards than it was. Um, with, uh, you know, you know, now it's, you know, is, is, is doubles gone away? Um, get into some of these uh, principles that uh, you shared with us. We could get into it in length, uh, perhaps another time too, but, um, you know, what would your mother think of, uh, watching one up one back doubles? I mean, what would she think of, uh, you know, kids just never taking a ball out of the air? I mean, I ask kids all the time, what happens first? The ball's in the air or the ball bounces? And a lot of times they go, the ball bounces. I said, no, 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 no. It has to be in the air to go over the net. Um, but what would your mother think of uh, some of the lost arts? You know, um, I, I think uh, uh, you know she she was always very visionary in her coaching. So she always had a plan, and her plan was to figure out a way to take away the other person's reaction time. So you know, uh, while she marvelled, I'm, I'm trying to think of who the, the the Spanish player was years ago. Uh, not uh, Reguera, you know, the one of the first players to like use a, a massive Western grip. You know, it was kind of shocking to her, but, um, you know, she's a huge proponent of moving forward and the court goes from north to south. So, yeah, it, it, 
Um, she felt players could be a lot more disruptive. You know, um, Federer was always very, you know, like not not just Federer as a person, but the way that he played was very appealing to her and absolutely taking the ball out of the air. She used to call that the air ball, you know. You're a great player, that ball goes up, you're moving forward. And I think too many kids nowadays, that ball goes up, they're moving back, regardless of the pace or the, yeah. the spin. But um, Yeah, Alvaro Bintacor, um, I'm going to guess that he still had a great forehand at Columbia, and he's still at Saddlebrook. And I know that you certainly took players there to train when you were in Tampa, have some of the younger players be with us and some of the pros or players you worked with. And I remember him saying, Barisategi, great to watch, great fight but he just set tennis back 10 years because yeah. when people see that, it's like, well, you can, you just have the license to hit the ball any way you want. You know, it's like Jack sock. I mean, the guy's got some grand slam titles in the, in the pocket. And, uh, it, you know, who do you want to copy Roger Federer or Jack sock? And I think, well, I'm going to ask Jack sock, whose bank account would you rather have yours or Federer? Right. And with, but actually to copy Jack sock, just grip it and rip it. You know, just bang the bang the ball, and you know that he's such a gamer. You know, he's eighty zero in high school, never really played up, always played his age group. A lot of things people don't stop and think. Let's let's go over the history of this. I had an older brother, um, and the fact that he was in the outback. He's from Nebraska, then uh, Michael Wolf in uh, Kansas. Um, you know, he wasn't really mainstream where where he, where he grew up and where he trained. Um, but the, the, the inner belief system of Jack Sock, he wins Kalamazoo. So he's, um, it might've been, it might've been 16s, but I think it was 18s. He won both, uh, both age groups. He lost one year in the 16s. That's another story, but, um, he just walks right in the player's lounge, walks right up to Federer and says, just assuming that Federer knows who he, who he is. And he goes, Roger, I know you're not playing doubles. Why don't you play with me? And Federer looks at him politely. He goes, uh, well, you know, maybe next year, but this year I'm just, I'm just not playing doubles. Thanks for asking, though. <laughs> With, uh, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I know Steve's got some other notes here as well. But just, uh, just looking back on your career in tennis thus far, um, what's what, what besides? Obviously, you've talked about the influence of Julian and the influence of uh, tennis tech. You know, transitioning from. Uh, you know, and you're still on court quite a lot, but transitioning from being a, say a tennis uh, teaching pro to now a, a business owner, a club owner. Um, what are some other skills that you've had to develop during that process to, to make you successful? Patience. More, more than anything is, is actually patience, you know, is, is getting a plan. Uh, was it plan your work? Work your plan. You know, is, is I think a lot of uh, just just like building a tennis game. Um, you know, you you put in all that work at the beginning, um, and uh, you know, especially with us, you know, a, a number of things, a number of decisions that we've made, you know, have have really panned out well. But uh, I would equate it sometimes to being playing, you know, playing in the French Open. You know, you really have to grind and you have to keep working at at at. Uh, you know, getting things to, to, to be where you want them to. And I think one of the biggest parts of it, um, I always remember seeing a picture of a duck on a, on a pond. And when you look at the duck from the top, uh, no, sorry, a, a swan, the swan looks so graceful. But if you look under the water, the feet are kicking like crazy. 
And when Steve, you know, talking about Julian, I think one of the biggest things is that, you know, when you have an organization, you have lots of things going on, the view to the consumer, you know, very often is a lot smoother than what's going on underneath the water. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest things of, of you know, in the day in, day out grind is, is that a lot of people are not going to see a lot of the stuff that you have to see to be able to deliver what you deliver. And, um, you know, very often if the only thing you see is the feet kicking underneath the water, you miss the, the swan, you know, gliding gracefully through the water, which, uh, you know, I certainly don't think that that business goes that way. But um, I think another one is is turning, um, you know, turning things into opportunity. Um, you know, one door closes, another door opens. And um, being able to adjust, I think adjusting is, like especially with COVID, you know, is that you had to be able to adjust very, very quickly and reinvent, you know, think, think of different ways of doing things. So I think, uh, you know, innovation is, is, is a big part of, big part of success. Yeah, I think, but, I, think, um, I think studying, uh, you know, Lynette Fetter, Roger's mother, don't show them the chink in your armor. You know, to try to just dig and find out as much as you can about how he was parented um, I think I mentioned, you know, Julian, he rocks up and he wins the 60s with that sense of enjoyment. Um, but, you know, you've you got to love the battle. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've you got to love the battle. I'm yeah. sure you, in, in business, um, you know, it's just like a match. You know, tennis is life, life is tennis. That uh, I'm sure you and Victor could look back and go, well, we could have spent that money a little more wisely. Uh, but it, it's it's... Yeah, it's just you know reflective thought and going back and making some changes and trying you know trying to you know there's so many things about goals. I think a great line is my goal is to have no goal. You know these junior players, I want to be top ten. I want to play Division One and say no. I want to have fun. I want to learn to learn to play. I want to improve my serve and just keep it simple. Um, but don't you find that the rules of tennis and the rules of business are pretty much the same? Yeah, I think um, actually the older you get, the more you realize that, uh, um, you know, by the time you get into the real world, tennis actually puts you in so many of those situations that you had to navigate um, that really prepared you for the stuff that was going to happen afterwards. Um, you know, getting ahead of yourself. Um, I think of when I first came here, you know, like after the first year, there was such a buzz, you know, when I came in. It was like we won the first set 6-1, you know. Then we started to have staff issues. Uh, okay, second set, you're down a break. Now what do you do? And I think just that mentality of, of um, you know, you, you, you got to do the work. you got to put in the work and, and you got to stick at it. Um, you know, I think in, in when you look at the ups and downs of a tennis match, um, you know, not getting ahead of yourself and not getting too upset about the last point. Nothing you can do about it. Just learn and move on. Take something from it and move on. That comes from your mother, correct? Um, that was definitely one of her. Yeah, being able to forgive yourself—that was one of her, her primary, one of her pillars of her coaching. You got to be able to let it go. Yeah, that's it's the next point. Don't fret over the last point. The last point's over. Uh, yeah. We have some core beliefs that you sent us from your mom. Uh, why don't you elaborate upon this? Uh, be a student of the game. Yeah, I think um, well, that was really, I think, a lot of um, the Vic influence is that, you know, anybody who's going to play, you've got to understand dimensions of the court, physical laws, um, 
you know, uh, is, is really immerse yourself in learning. And I think every time you walk out there, you're going to learn something more. Um, that was a Julianism. He always used to shake hands with everybody at the end of a lesson. I remember asking him why. He said, because, because of what I learned that day. And uh, I think it's always an ongoing thing that you're, you're always learning, but there's no substitute for a, a great base in, in what you know and good information. Oh, it's good to hear that. Uh, I know for years we used to teach people to always thank the students at the end of the practice, end of the lesson, because it was an opportunity to, to be their teacher. Um, yeah. With uh, this one, uh, Brandon, why don't you read this? Uh, Tomorrow never comes. Sure. <laughs> Tomorrow, I, I can hear my sister yeah. laughing. <laughs> um, um, I can't do I can't do my uh, my my South African accent, but. Uh, Tomorrow never comes. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Yeah. No, she uh, actually, it, it, it was that uh, African proverb. I'm actually going to read it. Every morning in Africa, an antelope wakes up. It knows it must outrun the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the slowest antelope or it will starve. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or an antelope. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. And uh, that really, like, like if I had to say, you know, that describes my mom. You know, like she, she literally, when she was, um, you know, 85 years old, no kneecap, on crutches all the time, fallen over a hundred times. And I remember going back there, seeing she had like a, a miner's light on her head. She had her oxygen pack on 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 her back. And I'm like, Mom, where are you going? She's like, I'm going for a walk. I'm like, what the heck? You know, it was like, it must have been 7 o'clock at night. It was pitch black outside. It was raining, and she wanted to go for a walk. And uh, she had her full senses. But, yeah, never put off till tomorrow. Uh, never put off till tomorrow what should be done today. And I think she just, um, you know, she was a doer. She uh, really, really believed in that. Well, the thing about South Africans um – I tell students that, you know, you have to be well over 60 and bald who uh, use nicknames and name calling. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell a kid, you're such a poodle. You are no pit bull. And, or, uh, you know, actually Spencer Johnson who's going to UCLA with his father. He's on one of these podcasts and he's doing a mission now for the Church of Latter-day Saints. Johnson, are you still a golden retriever? And, um, but the South Africans, um, you know, you're such a hyena. You steal food, yeah. So it's always yeah. it's always good to hear that uh, Vandermeer would do that. You're such a hyena. Uh, you want to be a lion. Um, I like that poster where the the kitten looks in the mirror and the reflection is they see a lion. Yeah. It's, uh, well, the other one is the frog. That uh, what's it? It's the bird that's going down the frog's throat, and the bird is trying to throttle or the other way. Another no, bird is swallowing the frog. Mm-hmm. used to have it. It was like one of the things you had. It was never give up. Right. No, we had that on T-shirt, but actually at Seguzo Bassett, we had that painted on a wall. And yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's a pelican, a pink pelican and a frog. And, frog going down his throat. Yeah, the frog, uh, the frog's a goner, but he's trying to choke the, the, the pelican's neck. And, and uh, then it says underneath it, never give up. Yeah. Never give up. Um it's more important to be a coach than a critic. Um, I'm always asking. Yeah. I'm always asking people to. Uh, I spent some time this afternoon with uh, Carla Navarro's husband, Robert Wojcik, and I said, uh, "Tell us about our podcast." He goes, "Oh, they're great, but they meander a little bit. Where it's not, you know, 
in order, but um, so we're looking for critics to have our podcast be better. I always tell people, you know, eat criticism like cookies. You know, uh, one of the Tony McGee who played at Michigan and then he played for the Cincinnati Bengals. I had him talk to my son Connor and give him some advice. You know, a guy who played at Michigan and a guy who's playing at Ohio State, they still can speak to one another. And Tony said, you got to learn to hate compliments. Just be polite and say thank you and then move on. But you have to thrive, thrive on criticism. You know, that's got to be your, your juice. Um, but comment on that, your mother said, more important to be a coach than a critic. Yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of kids, you know, especially younger players when they're playing, you know, when they start to beat themselves up, um, it's, it's them actually realizing the importance of learning something and moving forward. And I always think of that quote back to the tennis tech days. No doubt there's a field for critics, but I never remember seeing one in the Hall of Fame. You know, it's much, much more difficult to coach and push yourself. It's very easy to criticize yourself. So, I mean, I guess it depends which way criticism goes. And I think, um, you know, if you're going to be a great athlete, you've got to be a problem solver. No, um, that doesn't mean not being honest with yourself, but you've got, you got to be, you know, like it's, it's very easy just to, to criticize yourself. You know, as opposed to trying to figure out the solution. And, um, you know, one of her, my mom's stories was that uh, when she used to go up to Wimbledon to play in tournaments, um, when she spoke to her dad, if she lost, he put the phone down. And, you know, so like he just asked her the question, did you win? She said, no, I lost. He put the phone down. And when she got much older, she actually realized that actually her fear of losing was that he would put the phone down. So, you know, sort of got to the stage where, um, you know, she realized that she could forgive herself. And actually, I have her on video. I had some of the kids video her when she came up to Philly the one summer, you know, for her to share the story of like, you know, it's much more important, you know, to coach yourself and to criticize, but you have to be able to forgive yourself a little bit to let things go so you can move forward and be more productive. No, I was privileged to see some of those videos. That's great. Um, repetition is the mother of skill. Yep. Comment on that one. Well, you know, um, that year when I went back to South Africa, you know, they were, whoever was into practice makes perfect. And um, that was re- where I really hit her with, you know, um, practice makes permanent. So you better be careful what you practice. So, you know, the realization um, – she was a stickler for detail, but that's why I think Braden really, really helped her um, because she became crystal clear, you know, vertical racket face, tracking, low to high, you know, it really cleared up a lot of coaching for her. So then when, you know, she could see when people started to do a lot of repetition with clarity on efficiency, they just improved like crazy. So, so she was very careful with repetition to make sure that, like you were saying, you know, back in the day, you know, if somebody didn't hit the ball the right way, she would stop everything, you know, until they did it the right way. Going back to your time helping the USTA, uh, yeah, people need to know Braden Math. Um, you know, what what would your mother say? What would you say? I mean, collectively, how many years you were in tennis? How many years your mother was in tennis? And now you? That's a lot of years. It, Sure, it's a hundred easily, but uh, you know what do we need to do to improve tennis in America? Um, I think that one of the, the the biggest parts is 
letting people go through what they go through. I mean, I always remember winning, winning and losing is confusing. You know, I think kids have to compete like crazy. I think, um, depending on which level we're looking at, but I think there are a lot of kids who just take the, like they take so many lessons, but you've got to go through the school of hard knocks, you know, the ups and downs, the, the winning and the losing. But I do think that, um, you know, on, on the foundational level is making sure that people understand efficiency. Um, the coaches are trained better, um, to teach the right way. Actually, on, and, uh, on, on LinkedIn, uh, not that I even know how to use LinkedIn, but uh, I know somewhere on LinkedIn it says school or education, and I put down school hard knocks. Um, Mark, that's like Mark McCormick, you know, what What they didn't teach you at the Harvard Business School is a school hard knocks. You know, to, to get that glorified document, the Harvard MBA, I know uh, so many people that have that. And, you know, one, one thing they do, which is quite interesting, is they, they study other businesses. Um, we had a, a mom here today. She works for FedEx, and the Harvard Business School said, bad idea. You know, and the same thing with Kinko's. FedEx bought Kinko's. Uh, the gentleman who set up Kinko's, he was told at Harvard, bad idea. Um, a lot of people were yep. very successful. They got to Harvard, but they left. They took their ideas elsewhere, like, say, Bill Gates. Right. With... Um, this is a great one. Music, rhythm, and tennis. Yep. The Blue Danube. I never realized. Actually, I realized very young that the Blue Danube was the rhythm of the surf, the slow to fast. So a lot of times she would actually have little ditties and little songs. Um, but probably the strongest one was the Blue Danube. Um, that kids very often to try to teach, you know, once she taught them the shape of the swing, just trying to figure out, you know, when to accelerate. And she used to use a lot of music and songs. Like, you know, she'd have a lot of kids trying to sing a song that would go along with the slow, you know, purposeful shoulder turn into the acceleration. But uh, she actually sang in a choir most of her life. And, uh, you know, that really built her appreciation of music. But, um, yeah, she used to use it a lot in her teaching. Can you sing that song for us, Mark? Do that again. <laughs> That's it, guys. You have to pay for the. <laughs> uh, um, I, I told. But no, the blue, the blue Danube. Even to this day, I mean, you know, like when I look at a kid who who goes too fast at the beginning, you know, at, at the start of their serve, you know, I'll 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 go right back to that. Um, you know, to help get the kid understanding the rhythm. So I go back to running camps with 150 people, but for a long time, it's just been a, a two mini, two minivan operation. And a lot of people want to ride in the minivan that I'm not driving because when I, when I get in the van, it's a classroom, but I will, yeah. I will. Okay. All right. Let's see if it's a good song. Just push the button for a few minutes. And so rap came on today. And I told one of the players who, I reprimanded a tournament where, because I put him on the backboard and five minutes later, he's walking around with his flip-flops and his sunglasses. He's got the gold chain. He's got the earrings. And I go, and it was rap. I go, they're playing your song. But I was in, <laughs> I was in the car with uh, Roberto Calla, who has, he really wants players to listen to classical music. I was doing a video session today and I told some kids, it's very important. The forehand volley, the forehand ground stroke, think of it as a song. The song doesn't change. So someone could play, yeah. um, 
Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, Happy Birthday on the Piano. There's just so many different levels to it. But the song remains the same. The volley remains the same. Where so many people in tennis think, well, I got the basics down. I mean, there is quite a few people that you sent to me uh, that they came to us and then they, they evaluated the programs. Oh, this has been very good for the basics. And they shop and bop. And then some of them came back because then they started to be recruited. And someone says, oh, you were training there. You should go back. Because they, they just think they need to go to bigger, better and you know go where the players are yeah. instead of just staying right here and just keep reinforcing, reinforcing the base that you've been taught. Um, you have another one down, pictures worth a thousand words. Very, very visual. Yeah, no, that was uh, you know like like looking at our, our childhood tennis court. That that every everything that could be a teaching aid was a teaching aid. And um, you know, she just I think the more she could show them, um, you know, she'd really uh, again once she'd become more Bradenized, you know, pretty much every angle was drawn out on the court. You know, the different zones. Um. Although I think she might have taken a little bit from Peter Burwash. I mean, that was the other thing is very often after we, uh, after leaving tech, you didn't always know who had brought up watch, you know, uh, the different components of teaching. But, I, you know, when I think of all the Welby Van Horn, Burwash, there's quite a lot of grapple as well. well in speaking, that, but, uh, speaking of Jack Grapple, it was somewhere buried in our Facebook. You know, we have uh, 12, 13 years of daily content. We missed two days in 13 years. It's uh, you and Jack Grapple. And I looked at this videotape and I did, couldn't figure out who is this. In Span, it was you. It was a young, <laughs> young fit Mark Span with a full head of hair. And I go, this guy can hit the yeah. ball. Who is this guy? And I really, I, it took me a while to figure out who, who that was. Um, with uh, um, the key in tennis is not just to win, but to make sure you don't lose. Oh my gosh, that was huge. Yeah, all, all the bull, you know, Bull Jacobson. Um, I remember when when I was out there, Kylie was you know doing a lot of the a lot of the charting and and what have you. But um, you know her big thing was in tennis, you don't win, you lose. So you know, like very often when a point ended, she would spend a lot of time saying, you know, like she just she said this thing. She used to say, "What did you make? You made a mistake." So in other words, most of the time that that point, the players could actually figure out their percentages. Is that 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 the majority of the losses are really due to unforced errors, not forcing shots? So that was a big part of a big part of what she, uh, you know, actually, would instill. Actually, two of our pillars, uh, Bill Jacobs and Dennis Vandermeer, both South African. I'd have to ask for her forgiveness, Span, where it says, "Span, your mother won won a Wimbledon title. You must have been adopted." I'm sorry. <laughs> Please, please forgive me. Or Ty, Tyler, who never had any weight problem. I remember being down and having the kids. Uh, we actually used a 17-minute program, stretching program, every day. Because, you know, you think about having 120 people and all the variables. Is that stretching program being 17 minutes? One, it was very good for the players. But two, it was like, okay, this is a time for us to just organize all the different stations that we're going to have. But I can remember, Tylee, keep your chin up. Both of them. <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, Actually, uh, I brought a little hockey to uh, to tennis back in the day. Still, I think I do. Um, go ahead, Brandon. We'll keep going on this list here. A few more. There are, yeah, there are a couple more. But I think before we get to another one of these points, I think you just invented another word related to Braden. I've never, never heard that before. Your mother became Bradenized. I've heard Bradenites. I'm not sure yeah. I've heard Bradenized. I think that's, that's pretty good. 
Well, yeah. I mean, people make fun of it where they think it's hero worship, but they just don't get it. They don't understand tennis math. The, the dimensions, of the, I, get, I get tired. But you also, you know, I, I was saying probably one of the, uh, Brandon, one of the biggest uh, uh, things my mom did was actually, uh, they asked her, uh, about three or four of them, to rewrite the South African coaches' manual. This must have been like 1994, 1996. And I said, to, you know, I'm going to send Steve a copy of it. But I mean, the the the, the Braden information there is unmistakable. Mm-hmm. You know, the the vertical racket face, the follow through, the ready position. Um, you know, so in 1994, the great base was really, you know, um, there, there were a lot of coaches that were influenced by it. You know, all those coaches that were there every every Monday, you know, after lunch, they didn't realize they were going to be writing an exam, but I think they all got to the stage where they appreciated the, the exam, which was based on tennis for the future, you know. So, um, you know, a lot of the great great base was, was back there uh, way when. So I think when you see a lot of – go ahead. I was just going to say, your mother would lo- love to walk through this uh, FM Tennis Performance Center, all the history on the wall – I did, I did give Brandon a photo. We got to find it where it's from John Zimmerman on the toss and how the toss is arc forward. We call it, you know, you release it as a letter J and you know, you, the way you hang on to the ball, with your left hand. And how do you get the, if you're righty, how do you get that ball out in front? How do you get the ball, you know, to the right, um, going forward? You know, you ask people what's more important, the toss or the serve. You take a survey and they're going to say the toss. As where Vandermeer used to say, I give a $24,000 one hour clinic on the toss. I'll take Take it in $20 bills. Um, but uh, something as simple as the toss. You know, Vic broke so many myths, but, uh, you know, we, we need to come back. And I think Dave Anderson, who you know well, I think we mentioned that quite often. We asked him for a theme, and he said, uh, the movie Back to the Future. Tennis needs to go back to the future. Yeah, I think it's you know, actually, I buy up every, every I, I go on to um, eBay. I just keep buying Vic Braden tennis for the future and pretty much anybody I see that is, you know, starts to become more and more curious about, as I said, just read this book. You'll never look at tennis the same. And, um, you know, I mean, really not much has changed, you know, like in terms of, of, uh, physics is physics. And I think that was one of the, probably the, the best book ever written on, on tennis. And yeah, you know, I think one's going to keep getting it out there. I think what I was going to say is very interesting. What you said is that uh, all those years ago, when your mother, you know, contributed to rewriting the coaching manual for South Africa, um, you know, you, 90, 94, 90, 95, um, to say that you know that's that's the great base right there. I think Andy Fitzell did such a great job bringing the great base to so many new people through Instagram, but I don't think that a lot of them would probably even grasp that, 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 you know, that's the great base right there. It's, it's not, and that's maybe your frustration, Steve, is the, it's not great. We're not a great baser, you know, solid yeah. fundamentals, but uh, no, it's, I think that's very well said. Um, and it's great that, that, that that's had an impact as well, you know, major impact. I was saying a podcast. There's so many, every, we say everybody has a podcast now, everybody and their brother, uh, Jonathan Stokey. Um, you can learn so much by listening to people. He said, um, if you don't do it right, if you're not successful or if you're failing, just go back and do what your coach told you to do. Just go back. Something along those lines. I'm certainly not spot on with that. But, you know, he certainly acknowledged the great pace. But one thing that he's done is he takes, he's taken clips that Andy Fitzell has made and then he makes his own, which is fine. You know, the information's getting out. 
Uh, but, you know, in a lot of ways, there's no need to do that because of, you know, Andy's lifetime with Vic Braden. Um, you know, that second copy usually is, uh, there's a few things missing. But it's, it's great to just have people, you know, say, hey, you know, low toss out to the right. Like right now, like people are talking about palm down like it's a new thing. Like, yeah, the, this is what you do on the serve. Like it's just been invented. And that, that's not the case. Um, how about this one uh, from your mom? Pay it forward. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean it. It, it would be sell, you'd seldom hear her talk about something without giving the credit to its source. Which, look, at the end of the day, you know, when when one, um, you know, pretty much everything one learns. Like me saying to you, I I, I would not always be sure if I was quoting Welby Van Horn or, um, you know dentists or, you know, sometimes actually realizing, you know, where, what the, the original source of the information was, because sometimes, I mean, over the years since leaving tennis tech, I think one of the biggest things was being able to disseminate good from bad information. You know, when you listen to somebody, you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, some of these conversations about the serve and, you know, how to hit a forehand and to, to flick and roll out, you know, it's all of a sudden, okay, buddy, you lost me and hello. But uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of the great information, I know my mom, whenever she was teaching, you know, would say, you know, this is something that either uh, Vic, you know, came back with or – so she, she was very big at, 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 at giving credit where credit was due. With uh, the beginning of our podcast, Andy Fitzell is really the founder. He started it, the podcast, and we're getting pretty deep into it, getting close to having 100 podcasts now with – but of our eight pillars, um, you know, I've I was the one who worked uh, with seven, all eight of them, but Andy just with, with Vic. Um, but we don't want to be a magazine. What we want to do is just keep reinforcing because there's so many different levels of understanding, and it's it's not like well we it's not like we want to be closed. Well, we don't want to talk to that person. We don't want to talk to that person. But we just really want to reinforce the the message. Um, and I don't get tired of saying it. Uh, you know, I get people to chant it. It sounds like mechanical prayer from Braden. The dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion, or any unique theory. And if you go with that, you don't have too many arguments. Um, you know, in the end, uh, the strength of the individual comes out. There's always individuality. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, just here, as far as paying it forward, the, you know, Coming back to your mom's Monday meetings, you know, the camaraderie, uh, I think, again, that's probably something that's missing uh, in the sport of tennis is that, uh, you know, again, tennis being individualistic um, and, uh, and some coaches not mentoring younger coaches or, or uh, being on the educational side of the game. You're seeing it more now and now with social media, Instagram, but... Uh, a lot, a lot of that kind of like what Steve was saying, the copycats, it's, it's so much of that is still about, is about ego. So, um, yeah, I, th I think it was really cool, you know, back in the day when I, when I think of all those coaches that, that, uh, you know, would come out on a, on a Saturday, some of them, you know, became very, very famous in their own rights, but, uh, you know, for a lot of them, it was, it was the love of like, like she loved tennis talk, you know, we all know who our buddies are that we can talk for hours, you know, about tennis, but she, she, she loved to talk tennis and, and there was a lot of camaraderie between those people. And, you know, some of them were working like, you know, only three miles apart from each other. So you definitely had a lot of competition between them, but the, the actual 
chatting about tennis and stuff that was interesting, you know, brought everybody together. And that's really difficult to do nowadays. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, mean, I, I think, yeah, I like the idea. Give it away, give it away. Um, you know, with Andy Fitzell, um, make it free, make it free, make it free. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to do with the content. Um, you know, and we always say, well, these, these, you know, YouTube tennis gurus where they've, they've discovered the seven secrets of the serve and they're going to give you two of them. But if you want the other five, you got to get your credit card out by midnight. <laughs> and it's like WC Fields said, you know, there's a sucker who's born every minute. And now, I mean, with just in, you know, the U.S. is 300 million people, largest economy in the world. I'm going to get this out there and, you know, these well, the course is really worth uh, $347, but if you buy it by midnight, you can have it for $99. And it's like, really? Um, I mean, I like uh, Bill Belichick, you know, he's got supposedly one sign up, you know, New England Patriots, do your job. In your job, if you're a tennis teacher, your job is to get people to hit the ball better. I mean, and then take responsibility. Dennis Vandenberg, be your brother's keeper. Uh, that's where we mentioned Doug Cash one time. He said, uh, you know, using my name in third person, Steve Smith, he said, once you're a student of Steve's, you're always a student of Steve's. Because, you know, you know, you're teaching tennis. How do your students hit the ball? And I understand, like, you know, you have 300 people in your tennis club and somebody's playing once a week. Um, you know, they're not going to have, you know, beautiful, beautiful technique if it's, you know, they're just young kids. They're coming in, they're trying tennis once a week. But so the 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 recreational path and the competitive path, okay, they're different, but the information should be the same. The grips don't change, whether you're a recreational player. No, absolutely. What, player. The, the, the biggest growing sector in our club right now are players new to tennis. And, um, you know, this is where, like, one of the, the, the challenges is they don't even know what tennis is, but they want to try it. So... Finding that, that that balance between trying to get them to learn correct grips, correct swing parts, correct positions, but also trying to get them to experience a little bit of the game, um, you know, because sometimes the promise of the game is not necessarily going to, especially if they don't know why they're playing tennis, you know, like what what was your reason for playing tennis in the first place? Um, it's it's always bothered me how many people started tennis and didn't continue, and you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, if you don't improve a lot. Um, you know, uh, if improvement is directly proportional to, to your desire to want to continue playing. Anything you do well, you want to play more. Completely agree, but it also worries me how many people try but never get far enough into the experience to stick to it. I know you and I have talked so about they, it for, for hours and hours. Um, Dennis Vandermeer say you've got to get people to be able to rally. If they can rally, then they can get hooked. I think even the double hit, you know, stop it, hit it, uh, just to – just to get connected, uh, Jim Lair, the sound of the ball coming off your racket, rallying back and forth. Um, well, you were saying about pickleball, you know, like one of the things with pickleball, I took a lesson in Florida. After 45 minutes, he said, play. I'm like, no, I, I want to learn some more. He's like, no, play. Now, it's really frustrating to me because I wanted to learn more about it. But these people play pickleball because they can, because it's a wiffle ball and they don't miss but then as soon as they start to play, then they become much more hungry to learn more. Um, you know, so in fact, most people that, that, that take lessons for pickleball, not people that are new to it. It's people, once they start to get up in the levels and then learn the nuances, but the game itself is so simple. You know, you can just play it with, 
like like people that have never played ball sports before can play it. You know, Chuck Gill. And that blows my mind. Chuck Gill is a past president of USPTA. He's been in tennis forever. I'd say everybody loves the guy. I know now he's doing things with USTA Florida. Um, it was a few years ago. I just saw him at the US Open, sat, sat down and talked to him, and we're talking about pickleball. This is several years ago now. And he said, it's a casual sport. They should leave it a casual sport. Now, maybe the business that used PTA, PTR, and um, like overnight those organizations became pickleball organizations. Um, but yeah, for the people that were teaching to play tennis, you know, they could play pickleball extremely well. Um, but um, actually, uh, spec tennis, uh, we need to have the people that are in charge of spec tennis on a podcast. Uh, Dave, Dave Fish, uh, the former Harvard coach. Um, it's a bridge sport. If people can play uh, spec tennis, which is basically what Althea Gibson played and Bobby Riggs started that way and Pancho Gonzalez with a punctured tennis ball. They're recommending to play with a, an orange tennis ball. And um, it is that perforated paddle. They're a lot nicer than they used to be. It used to be, you know, basically just a wooden mallet. Um, but I think that's a great term, bridge sport. Um, yeah. But a lot of times, if people are playing pickleball, I mean, I walk by this park every day and watching people play. Again, brain memory, they're not learning to swing very well. You know, that's one thing about kids going out and playing with a red ball. Uh, there's no science to, you know, well, the ball's going to be lower. You won't use an extreme grip. But there's really no science behind, you know, does it really work, the transition balls? And from my point of view, um, you know, we haven't really surveyed that. But kids still have bad technique, whether they're playing with a, I always say, well, let's, like, let's get a balloon out there. You know, let's make it so slow that they play with a balloon. Uh, Mark, Mark, just, uh, I know you touched on uh, trying to help beginners learn the correct form and then also, uh, you know, figuring out, hey, what's, what's the reason we came out here in the first place? What, what's our motivation? Um, and then even, I'm sure, giving them a chance to play and have fun. Uh, what's been your club solution to solving that particular problem? Um, <clears throat> is really doing a lot more studying on how five-year-olds think, how seven-year-olds think, the difference between like their cognitive behaviors. You know, uh, trying to get a kid at, at the age of five to do reps, um, very, very difficult. Um, but try, trying to regress them to that, like if I go with, with uh, Dennis's graduated length method, um, you know, is taking them to the point where they can at least have some success to move them forward. Um, thinking back many years ago to even rolling a ball on the ground, you know, a kid who can't hit a ball over the net, start rolling, have them roll the ball on the ground so they learn tracking, you know. You want the ball to go from north to south, roll towards your target. So I think one of the biggest things that, that we're definitely getting better at but is is trying to take them back to the point where they're successful. I mean, a little bit the way you know music is taught. You know, you go back to the last note you can hit correctly. Um, you know, so so one of the biggest challenges, um, you know, with these little kids is is even when they're do, when they're doing a full swing, they can't rally with each other. So you know, using more of the graduated length method is doing a shorter swing. And as they move back, their swing gets bigger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, adding adding the final efficiency of a loop for power and, and disguise, but the loop would come last, but you would actually start from the contact, so at least they've got a contact point, 
and get them to get a, a, a form of tracking so at least they can start some kind of a rally um, to get going. And look, again, if, 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 if I look at all the years of coaching, I mean, I feel every day I'm a student of the game, I'm learning. Um, but I definitely find, you know, like, like you, you put a coach out there who doesn't understand how a five-year-old thinks, that's disaster before you even started trying to teach them a grip or a swing or a contact. Mark, yeah, you uh, got to know. Go ahead. You got to know. No, you you got to know who you're teaching. You know, I mean, you you got to know who you have in front of you, and what you got to be able to pull out of your basket to 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 handle that person at the stage they're at with their their cognitive um, understanding and behavior. What about Mike Barrel, Evolve Nine? Tell the listeners how he's helped you out. Um, yeah, he actually came and spent a day with us, and um, you know, I'd, I'd studied quite a lot of his stuff before. Um, you know, I, I find you know, that some of it quite controversial with my background, but I also found, uh, you know, he's very big on regressing and and progressing. You know, trying trying to, you know, creating a drill at the point where a kid can be successful, and then moving them forward from there. And you know, I, I can say that for some of the parents that are watching our coach trying to get the kid to roll the ball on the ground because they're trying to teach tracking. You know, I've we as an organization have to better do a better job of saying to the parent, I know this doesn't look like tennis, but your kid is actually learning. You know, your kid, your kid is starting to understand the fundamentals of, of, you know, obviously you don't get the low to high rolling the ball, but you're teaching tracking. Yeah. So very often it's trying to simplify the task. Um, you know, kids when they're younger have no spatial awareness. You know, that the ball could be bouncing and hitting them in the head. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the coaches, when I was working with the USTA, I got to spend a lot of time around with, with Jose Higueras. You know, I always think of him saying, you know, when you learn tennis, you learn with your hands and then you learn with your feet. Then you learn with your eyes and your feet and your hands. And that kind of really made it. Ironically, I'm listening to Jose and who's standing behind me, Vic. This was in California. And all of a sudden, Vic recognized me, which was a very, he had this, 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 this uh, four or five coaches standing around him. And all of a sudden he goes, Mark. And I turn around, you know, like, and, and it's him, but we're listening to Jose, you know, giving this, this uh, dissertation on, um, you know, eyes, hands, and feet. But I think a lot of the time, um, you know, realizing where that kid is at, but really, you know, at the beginning, very stationary and trying to get them to, to, to do some of the skills that still teach them efficiency. Um, and it's important for them to fail, obviously, but also find stuff they can be successful at. Jose Garris, the forehand volley is almost a continental grip. That's a good way to just stop the argument. You know, certainly the Bradenism, turn the racket eight times, 360 degrees by eight, every time you change the, the bevel by, yeah. by one, it's 45 degrees. Actually, uh, Tom Fye, thoughts are with Tom Fye. He's my age. He worked for Vic. He's had a heart attack. Um, I have a film of Tom Fye. He was given the award the second year. Mike Carter got it the first year. Tom Fye got it the second year. This is when they were calling uh, Little Kid Tennis uh, Quick Start. And Fye is such a Pied Piper. So this film I have of Tom Fye leading a Quick Start clinic, Vic Braden's filming it. And uh, Vic said, yeah, you're doing a clinic? He goes, oh, it's only two hours away. Hey, let me come and film it. <laughs> And I have a copy of that. Um, but no, I certainly hope Tom Fye pulls through. Um, you know, I'm talking about people. I always tell people, no, no, we don't stab anybody in the back. We stab them right in the stomach. Is not talking behind anybody's back. And also working with goal-oriented players is that we're making this a team. It's kind of like a family. You know, I'm from a family of six. And if, if one of the brothers screwed up, three older brothers, we all screwed up. We're all going to pay the price. And um, 
but um, with uh, some different names, um, what comes to your mind with Peter Burwash? I know you, you know, he was part of Tennis Tech, then he became a very good friend of uh, Julian's. You, you got time to spend with him. What comes to your mind with Peter Burwash? Um, really thought, really thought the business side through. Um, pros that worked for him ran the gauntlet, which had probably not that much to do with teaching. And I look at most of the places that these coaches go to, but he really got them to understand professionalism. Um, and I think his training, like back when, wasn't it somewhere in Texas? Wood something? Yeah, he, he was in Honolulu for a long time, but then yeah, he was in the Woodlands. Yeah, yeah Woodlands. And, 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 and you had to go through like two weeks, and most people didn't make it through two or three days. But from your living habits to your disciplines. And I've met a bunch of these guys in like over the years at different resorts. And of course they have this high level of professionalism, but there's so little going on at the resorts. I often wonder, you know, these guys are so highly trained, but yet when they actually get there, there's so little to do. And of course, resort teaching is an animal of its own. No, and also um, Peter, quite a few of our students work for Peter. And when you're at a five-star hotel, you have a captive audience, but then when you leave and you go out in the, the dog eat dog uh, world, that's great coming back to your mother that she's having these get togethers and there's coaches that are working three miles down the road that, that really yeah. needs to happen. Um, I, I read a bunch of Peter's books, you know, like uh, he had a couple of business books as well and um, definitely have taken uh, you know, a, a lot from it. Um, yeah, and actually one of, one of them was uh, especially like working in a, in a large camp, you know, when you get all those coaches and all those things is that you, you just have to fix it and move forward. You know, sometimes you can't go back and analyze something very often was just fixing something and moving forward. I think that was one of his. Oh, no, you, know. you were grinding on Peter Burwash where, you know, you're going to have, you're going to show up and this is where you're going to dress. You're not going to show up for an interview and be wearing a tennis outfit. You're going to show up. You're going to have on a coat and tie. We, we teach. It's a little more difficult for us to come up with how the gals should dress, but the guys, you know, have your, your khakis and a blue shirt and, and, you know, have a tie on, but be carrying your blazer so you don't come in and you're like, you know, who's this guy? Like, he's just totally overdressed. But, yeah, service, professionalism. Very um, professional, yeah. How about uh, Katie Schuchelbeer with, um, I think, Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, the family, a lot of success, played at Stanford. What did you learn from that family? Um, I think it's that, that was, mm. those are the hidden stories. Like, you know, how did they do so well? You know, you come from Michigan. No, I, 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 I Jason Jason um, played with her at the mixed doubles at Wimbledon, but they pretty much just, you know, it was one of those things she was looking for somebody to play with. And he was a pretty, uh, you know, competent doubles player, but I really don't know much about, um, okay. in fact, I know very little about Katie. Okay. Um, with uh, Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, no, just uh, coming back, I think, you know, one of the great tidbits is the, and Steve just mentioned it again, the Monday the Monday lunch uh, meetings. Um you know, mentioning again the the coaches that were coming and they were actually in direct competition with each other. Uh, I'm sure there's a similar situation where you are. I'm sure it's a competitive environment with your club um, and you're competing against other clubs. And uh, f f in terms of how you've developed it, what do you think is your competitive advantage over, over some of the other local clubs? I think that actually after spending all those years at, at Tennis Tech, I have so many things I'm still trying to work out. I probably don't spend enough time looking at my competition. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I think I think that we have in our area probably two or three clubs that really have their act together, you know, that are on the ball, training their coaches, recognizing their players, putting programming together. And on the other hand, there, there are quite a few clubs that are so independent where the coaches just rent courts. Mm-hmm. And I literally see that as the degradation, like it's, it's the degradation of tennis. Like right. nothing's being developed. The coaches are just, uh, you know, uh, taking clients from each other. But there are a couple of organizations that have really done a good job where I know the coaches are, you know, like proud to work there, but also the, the clubs are forward thinking, you know, where they're trying to, to do something. And, um, you know, they're evolving. But there are a lot of clubs that, I mean, we've just had three clubs that have closed down in our area, like in the last two or three years, you know, like tennis clubs, which is, is concerning. But, you know, property has obviously become a lot more valuable. And, you know, when you look at it, but, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, even as one looks at it, the uh, teaching the professionals how to be professional and how, how an organization, uh, I think of that doubles quote, two is greater than one when two can work as one. You know, when you get a group of people that work well together, um, they're going to work circles around the uh, individual. Mm-hmm. That's interesting with the brain type, like you and Victor being a doubles team, basically. Um, yeah, you can put, put an introvert with an extrovert. You know, you, like you got Famous Harry Hopman told uh, Tony Roach. Yeah, I'll, I'll reflect a lot more than Vic. Vic will make Vic will make decisions quickly. I'll reflect, and then actually that reflection sometimes kills him because before we uh, were partners, he said he used to like you know get in the shower every morning and just say, "Okay, am I going to do this or not do this?" Right, and now you know some of the conversations can go on for two or three hours to make you know some of these decisions. So it takes a lot longer to make decisions, but we make much better decisions. Yeah, the brain, brain typing, you know, you first understand yourself, how you're wired, and then it'll help you out with others. But yeah, Newcomb, uh, ENTJ, where Hopman told him, he said, uh, let Roach think that you're the captain of the double ship, but you're the one who's making the decisions out there. Right. You know, he's just, you're totally right. Marinkovic, yeah, same thing. Yeah, totally Marinkovic. Um, you know, um, you and I could talk about this character. Um He's from this former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Serbia. I'm not sure which, but um, so fast. Didn't have a really big serve. Tossed too far over his head. But boy, what clean ground strokes. And um, yeah, I just heard this story through you know, mutual acquaintances, friends who, who, who crossed paths with Tolly. But he married the actress Robin Givens. And talk about strategy. He actually rented a yacht. And so she was on the yacht and she didn't know it wasn't his. And, you know, then he um, rented, I guess the story goes, he rented a private jet and he, she just thought that he was loaded. So they finally, they get married and he goes, I gotta just tell you one thing. I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this guy told him, so I, if I was at a function and uh, you mentioned Johan Svensson's name and his wife told me this, that totally took so much money from the team players playing cards and the guys couldn't pay him. So the guys were doing his laundry. He'd go to the cafeteria and one of the, you know, somebody, yeah. somebody on the team would go through the, through the line and he wouldn't wait in line. And then when he'd be done eating, so one of the other players would have to take his tray up and you know, the guys, yeah. the guys couldn't pay him. He goes, well, I'll find a way, way for you to pay me. But yeah, that's one thing. It just didn't, you know, you think about just so many different people. I mean, we can make a list, um, you have to go through old photos of the JKST summer staff. 
What, you know, yeah, there are a lot of them there. There must have been probably thirty plus people. Yeah, I was going to say I was going to say fifty people um, that uh, that were connected with JKST. Um, go ahead, Brandon. We wind this down, but it's been great to talk to you. We certainly could talk to you again. What a journey in tennis. I think one of the one of the first things you said uh, was yourself learning tennis as a five year old and how you may be one of the one of the more uh, difficult students to work with and disruptive is probably the right word yeah disruptive and then and then just kind of a few minutes ago talking about uh, how you've uh, you know you've been working well if it's yourself or your staff working with five year olds and and the uh, the capacity for for what type of you know, learning or what type of, uh, exercises might, might be best. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of bridge those two together. I'm kind of leaving it up to you. Yeah. Um, you know, like if, if, if I look back, um, I probably have pretty severe ADD and have had ever since I was a kid. And when I was a young kid, I actually only had one teacher that didn't punish me, you know, going all the way through school. Um, and, especially in looking, you know, like, like at kids right now, trying to recognize, um, you know, that, that, that for a lot of kids, the journey of trying to figure stuff out, it's tough. Um, you know, how they see the world, you know, you have, you have a kid that comes out, uh, you know, like an, you look at teenagers, you know, all of a sudden, um, bullying and cyber bullying and, and all the stuff they go through. So I think, um, you know, when kids come out and uh, they come out onto our courts, you know, in many ways, we want to try to disconnect them from all the other stuff they're doing and put them in a really positive environment. But knowing who you have in front of you and how they respond, you know, is really, really um, a large part of it. So um, ironically, the meeting that we had this last Monday, we were going through efficiencies. Um, you know, every group actually had to sit down and discuss the people that they were coaching. You know, who are they? What are they doing? Um, why are they there? You know, more than anything, is like the kid that you have in front of you. Why are they playing tennis? Why do you think, you know? And we look at our, like in our tournament players, it's pretty obvious. Um, and I would say something that, that to me has always been really important is that probably 98% of the people I've taught tennis to still play tennis. Like it's always important to me to love it, not, you know, not just to work hard, but to love what you do, you know, do what you love, love what you do. And the days you're going to hate it and, all tennis players, you're not going to always love being on a tennis court, um, but really important to 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 enjoy, you know, the experience of what you're doing. But you know, knowing where people are, and especially in their learning and and how they look at something, you know, you can tell anybody to do anything, but sometimes you know, trying to get them to actually do it. And uh, you know, I for you know, if somebody plays tennis, they're going to play it for the rest of their lives. So trying to get them onto the hook to play tennis for the rest of their lives is, is really important. So knowing where that person is in their tennis journey, really, really important. And with younger kids knowing, you know, a little bit of what their learning capacity is. We sometimes put younger coaches with the younger kids. And I sometimes I've realized over the years, you, you literally have to have your most experienced person with the younger kids because a mother, you know, would understand what kids go through when they're younger, what they can and what they can't do. Whereas a young coach who does, you know, may have plenty of enthusiasm, but really doesn't understand what they're working with because they don't understand the person mm-hmm. or yeah, their capabilities. I mean, really, in the end, they haven't pounded any nails. You know, you, you're, yeah, it should be flip flopped. Where uh, Julian does a funny job, a funny. It's just funny the way he says, "Well, 
you know, he, he coached on the tour. And he just stands with his arms folded, hugging a racket. He goes, yeah, I coached on the tour. And he, he just hugs the racket. And he goes, but I found it rather boring. Um, <laughs> with um, No, you sent a family recently, and it just was a slip-up. Uh, it wasn't the end of the world, but uh, the dad talked to me. And, I mean, you've been so smart just, just sending people to us who, you know, they're really committed to being a better player. So we'll, we'll... yeah, actually, actually, the kids that came to you um, really grab it. They really took what they've learned, and actually, the guys, both the twins, are really playing really efficient tennis. So it's okay. it's very so it, it had a very it had a very very positive effect on them. Which um, yeah, but when they first showed up, it was like, uh, well, this is not the Cub Scouts. This is a little closer to the Marines. It's not the Marines, but it's closer to the Marines than it yeah. is the Cub Scouts. <laughs> I no, they're definitely people I would send and not send, you know, like, like over the years, you know, there's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't kill them with kindness. Um, the truth hurts, but the truth will set you free. Uh, I think one thing to end on for me is uh, presentation information. So back in the day, span comes in listeners. He's a good looking guy. He plays well. He has all sorts of experience. He's taught. And we Americans are, we, we fall for accents. So you, you were an out-of-town expert. You were from a long ways away, and your presentation was so good. And I just remember, uh, you know, putting the pedal to the metal and giving you an extra hard time because, like, no, no, because you very easily could have got away based on your playing background, the South African accent, you know, the, the experience that you already had because your presentation skills were very high, but I just remember span. That's an A in presentation and an F in information. <laughs> you, you said this, this, and this, and this. Um, I Don't worry, my mother won't take it personally. I, I remember on uh, Group Dynamics uh, with Vandermeer, um, for whatever reason, uh, he tested me. He got me out on the court, and we shared this when we talked about Vandermeer. Is he blew the whistle every time I made a mistake, and it was like Tweety Bird. You know, every time I made a mistake, he blew the whistle. Boom, 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 boom. And, uh, yeah, but you've had an amazing background in tennis through your mom, you know, going, going to spend in Vandermeer when you were younger. And then also, too, the tennis tech, I mean, we feel strongly that what we put together is people need to really understand that the curriculum or the pathway we have. Um, yeah, we're, you know, certainly interested in new ideas and, you know, ways to get better. I think that's so much, is very much available now through nutrition and fitness sports psychology, but not so much in ball striking. But no, it's been great to have you on. Why don't you wrap it up, guys? We'll go with Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been a pleasure. Um would love to uh come up and come up and visit and and uh certainly would love to have you down here and and uh, check out what we have going on down here and um it's been great learning about your your background, uh your mother of course and all the stories and the lessons there. But uh yeah, thanks for coming on. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. And Steve, I got to thank you actually for the project of, um, you know, thinking back on my mom. You know, I think like too often in life you're you're so busy moving forward, but actually looking back and reflecting, and actually both myself and my sister really, you know, started to think about a lot of these things. And uh, you know, it's it's uh, one sometimes forgets the well. You know, where where a lot of your information and you know, the person you have to thank the most. So uh, I really thank you for uh, for the opportunity and uh, for insisting that I write that stuff down. You were 100% right. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. With uh, Canadians, um, 
the Canadian population, most, most Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border because if you keep going north in Canada, it's the tundra. And because of that, even though Canada is so large coast to coast, it's amazing how many Canadian kids are around their grandparents and Americans are not. This Coco Goff, just reading about her and uh, both her grandmothers were homeschool teachers. It's like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Um, but no, that's one of the goals of the, the Great Base is to carry the torch and, you know, tennis teachers from the past. Um, but uh, yeah, we could go into more detail on the, work, on the uh, manual that your mother put together. And, um, but no, I, you know, thanks so much for, for being on. Uh, I think one thing, and Vic used to always say that there should be a master plan. And I was flattered that you'd mentioned me. And, and I said, yeah, Vic, you go forward with a, a flashlight making new discoveries. And I go backwards hitting people over the head with a club. But we, but we, we really should have a master plan. Uh, I think Brandon mentioned it through Andy Fitzell, his wife, uh, put in a lot of hard yards and more people know about what we're doing. Um, you know, we have some plans uh, to, to try to, you know, really it's uh, like our core is tennis intelligence applied is just make that tennis intelligence applied 2.0. It's not like we do need to do anything different, but everything that we've done, we just need to do it better. And, and, and the goal really is try to um, improve tennis teaching. And uh, Rob Krychek, uh at one time, uh, he heard Craig Tiley when he became the director of player development in tennis Australia is that he said it was going to take me 10 to 15 years to have a network of coaches around the country, around Australia. So Rob Krychek read that. And then he contacted um, Paul Rodert, who's back with the USTA now. And, and, you know, Rob, um, the meeting happened at that time. I think Austin was number one in the country as a junior. I mean, he was right up there. He won Kalamazoo. And, you know, we do have that network. You know, there should really be a master plan on, um, um, you know, I do think that, you know, we get up every day and as a group of tennis teachers and we've got to, just like anybody, you got to do, you got to do A, you got to do what's right in front of you. Um, but then to have B and say, okay, how can we, you know, team up? I'd say we are a team, but, you know, to become united and um, it would be nice to have a, a campus in the summer um, where it's like, okay, coaches can come, players can come. And really the parents need to be the ones that are educated in this player development. Um, that we say all the time is a consumer, they're blindly writing checks. They don't have consumer knowledge. You know, Vic used to always say is that if people can afford tennis lessons, socioeconomic functioning level, unless they inherited it, they're pretty smart. They're pretty smart if they could pay for tennis lessons. Where a lot of, Vic would say this, a lot of tennis pros can't afford their own lessons. So, so there's consumer knowledge, but then, then there's product knowledge. And if there's product knowledge, there should be a product and that product should be produced. And Andy Fitzell is always saying, let's just watch their students hit the ball. And, you know, Vic used to say, okay, take the kid with the, put, takes the ice cream cone and they put it in the middle of their forehead. Or they go to the water fountain and they can't have the water hit the lips. It takes them a while. But if you can still teach that person how to play, I think we have it so backwards is that we have all these merchants of flesh that are just recruiting players. You know, they're hanging around tournaments and handing out business cards and the third base coach, and they're coaching kids who can already play a little bit. But, um, no, the whole motive is, you know, to try to help people play better, teach better. And, um, but no, it's been great to have you on, and we uh, need to circle back and talk to you again. But thanks so much. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That's Appreciate smart. the opportunity. Yeah. Be I well. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again. Cheers, Steve. Yeah.
Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. Number 84. 84 is in the books. Um, I know people are listening to these. They, we get a lot of feedback. Um, had someone tell me they first started and it was just so boring, but then they tried to do some of the things on the court and go, this works. And um, but yeah, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And um, I said, after we get to 100, we got to take some of our supporters and put a group of writers together, have show notes and go just bullet points, you know, from Mark's band, boom, 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 because there's some golden nuggets. Mm, absolutely. All right, Flanagan. Listeners, thanks. Thanks, for everyone. Hanging in there. Hope you got something out of it. Adios.